Hey everyone, this is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to the newest episode of the Hashishin. As always, thank you for tuning in. I want to take a moment and say I hope everyone finds themselves safe, healthy, and optimistic in these times. We're happy to be able to bring you some new content to pass the time. On today's episode, episode 15, we'll be talking to Matt Rise, so stay tuned for that. I want to give a warm welcome to our first sponsors. Shout out to Low Temp Plates and Rosin Evolution. And of course, to our amazing Patreon community for being the driving force and allowing us to continue to bring you what we hope to be valuable conversations. I want you to know that we value your experience as a listener more than anything. For that reason, we'll only be working with a small number of sponsors. We won't be throwing a ton of ads at you. And we'll only work with companies whose products and philosophies align with ours and that we believe in. The great folks at Low Temp Plates They pride themselves on bringing awareness and education to the community, which is important to us as well. And it's something that we really value and support. So if you're looking for a rosin press, and more specifically, the last rosin press you'll need to buy, look no further. Low Temp Plates backs that up with a lifetime warranty on their U.S. manufactured equipment. Additionally, as a way of supporting our community and our platform, Low Temp Plates is offering our listeners a 5% discount on your entire order, except on freeze dryers, using our savings code, being the letters THI, standing for The Hashish In. Again, that's THI with no spaces. And speaking of presses, our other great sponsor, Rosin Evolution, is there to take care of all your rosin needs, including rosin bags, wash bags, rosin tools, and much more. They construct their bags out of 100% nylon thread for maximum strength, leading to less of the much-hated blowouts. They are also hooking up our listeners with a 5% discount on your entire order using our savings code. Again, the letters THI for the hashish in. So please, if you can, support the companies who support us and our ability to keep bringing you content. As always, you can support us through our Patreon or by leaving us a written review on iTunes. A special thank you to the people who've taken the time to do that. You'll get another dose of the Hashishin in a couple weeks with our 420 special with none other than Nick T. I'm wishing everyone the best out there. Stay safe, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the 15th episode of the Hashishin. I am your host, Shirag Mumir. Today I am with someone who doesn't need much of an introduction in the hash world, Matt Rise. Matt, welcome. Hey, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and, you know, talking. Yeah, of course. Welcome. You can follow Matt on Instagram at Matt double underscore rise. And you said that's your sixth attempt now? I think it's my sixth account or something like that. Yeah. Does that get tiring? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a while with this one. So I I kind of recovered from the loss, the shock and the loss. But uh, yeah, it's pretty annoying. What do you feel... Like, what's the biggest loss, I guess, for you? Well, you lose all your DMs, and I'm, you know, I have conversations going on with 100 people right now or something like that, and uh, you just have to start over, got to reblock everyone, needs to get blocked. It's a whole, it's just a whole process, and it's kind of annoying. One day we'll get those blue checks. (laughs) So, through your social media, I've seen that you've been in Oregon lately, Yep. And you being at the beach and at the <laughs> rivers and hanging out. Is this hash retirement or? Oh, it's just been a nice summer and we're trying to get out while the weather's right and explore 
our new home, basically, which is outside of Portland. Cool. And, uh, yeah, it's just been a real beautiful summer to get out. And, obviously, you're now in Oregon, but you were in California not long ago. Yeah, we moved here a few months ago. I'm curious what the reasoning behind that is. Well, we were, I mean, we were living in Oregon two years ago, and we moved back to try to work with the Prop 64 licensing and blah, 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 all that. And decided not to so we moved back up here we have family up here and we don't really have much family in california so it's nice to be back up here cool yeah i mean yeah. it's beautiful up here for I mean, sure. you met, you know, we got family up here yeah yeah absolutely and you know on a personal note i just want to thank you you had me over to your home and for dinner and even over with some friends uh so that was a real cool experience so you know i appreciate that yeah thanks for coming you know now that you're here in oregon i've seen that you've been smoking on some Nelson and Company, you know, slash Pua. Yeah. Collabs. Um, some non-solvent, yeah. Yeah. Anything else in your head stash? Because I've seen that, you know, you've, you've flaunted the fridge a few times and some of your, I guess, personal work that you have kind of stored. I mean, I got my little library of flavors from <laughs> the past year or so. I've kind of just stopped selling hashes, started keeping it all and... It's a nice feeling. <laughs> <laughs> what are so, some of the flavors that you have in there? Well, we got our Starburst OG, which we've been working with for a while now. Shout out to Cash and the Village for getting that cut our way. That is my favorite hash strain of all hash strains because it's anti-anxiety. The physical texture of the resin is exactly what I'm looking for in a full melt. And yeah, it just makes me feel right. And then we have a couple crosses of that made by my boy Skunkworks. Shout out Skunkworks. The orange starburst and the chocolate starburst, which are nice, you know, different, completely different flavors than the starburst. That's my little cool. Yeah, that's my arsenal right now. We just let go of the GMO because everyone's doing it. So why do we got to do it, you know? I can get it from Nelson Co. <laughs> For a good price. So, you know, I don't even have to grow GMO anymore, which is kind of. Growth and from a grower's perspective, it was kind of pain in the butt. It took forever to flower. And you know, speaking of that GMO, I think they've been putting mostly rosin version of that out. So that's what you've been smoking. You know, is that kind of a preference right now, or? Well, I like the GMO. It's newer to me. I've only been smoking on it for a year or two, which in my that's newer, and I like it. It's strong. It's very strong. I've heard complaints about how strong it is, which. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, no, it is strong. I definitely agree. It, it packs a strong effect. and It kind of ruined my tolerance. So I started down a lot of GMO and then everything else kind of started feeling a little weak. And I was like, uh-oh. And now I'm back in like the Starburst zone. Which means basically I dab heavy indica all day because that's what Starburst is. <laughs> Why is it that it's such a favorite of yours? I don't I just, I really am in love with the physical properties of the resin. I think it's like the perfect hash strain that will never be overproduced, which makes it even more special. And it's hard to explain to people who don't make hash, but like the actual physical property of the heads is a true challenge for me to separate and, and air dry. And I like the challenge is what, this is like my weird thing is I like to work with hash strains that are very difficult to work with. And then I like to, make them by hand, which is a whole nother level of difficult. And it's just, it's what keeps me interested in hash is having the challenge. Like I've done Starburst, you know, however many times, 
and it's still difficult every time I do it, which is what pushes me. Like that's what gets me excited is rising to the occasion, I guess you say. And what do you find that's difficult about it? The Starburst resin is very greasy, which I know it's something you want to talk about, but it's very soft and it melts in the fridge and it, which to me, I think it's low wax. And that makes it, in my opinion, better than something like GMO or these other like white hash strains that I think are, are waxy. And so that's how. It's a very high oil trichome head, so, I think, in my opinion. So you think there's more? More oil, less wax. Okay. Which makes it very difficult to work with. It makes it lower yield. Right. It makes it something that is easier to mess up. You have to be very specific with it so that it doesn't. But if you are, it's your favorite. Yeah, it's my favorite when you do it perfectly. It's my favorite. I think it's like the truest anti-anxiety, relaxing, full melt strain that I've found. And Because I'm limited to full melt strains. Right. So I'm working with, you know, a handful of genetics instead of the entire cannabis genome. Yeah. And to a certain degree... The genetics that you're running now are kind of starting to become almost like old school. Yeah, I mean, Starburst has been around for a long time, and it's from old school. Or it's old Bubba and Fire OG, which are both old. And then, uh, you know, our crosses of it are kind of newer. But it's, you know, I stick with what I like. Right. Yeah. Cool. On another note, you know, I know you're definitely working on CBD right now. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that, you know, and kind of see, you know, what you're doing, but also where your initial interest in CBD came from. Okay. Well, now we're going to get kind of personal here. So my mom died of cancer. She didn't get to use cannabis medicine because she was doing some experimental trial and they were drug testing her. And it was pretty brutal to watch. And then, you know, after that, I went full time into the cannabis industry and I've been looking, I've heard of CBD and that it helped cancer. And so, you know, for 10 years, I've been looking for CBD material. And at first it was very hard to find. And basically the store I work with, I told the buyer like, hey, if you see anything with CBD, buy that shit. And then I'll buy it from you because I'm trying to make some CBD. And they're like, what the fuck is CBD? No one wants that shit. It doesn't get you high. And so I first saw ACDC. I didn't even know that it was 20 to 1. I just knew it had CBD. Okay. And then I made it into oil and we sold it. And then the people came back to me and said, hey, this didn't get me high at all. And I was like, now that's different because the one-to-ones get you pretty blazed. You know, we do Canatonic and Pennywise. And, and then this ACDC comes in and the people are like, hey, listen, I was a very good friend of mine who was a customer at the time at the dab bar where I worked, came and said, listen, kid, this one doesn't get me high. And I'm like, whoa, sorry about that. But, uh. We, we don't know. And we didn't, there was no CBD cannabinoid testing at the time. We just you know, knew. I mean, if there was, it was very primitive. And then. What year is this? That was when I was working with the Hopland dispensary, which has to be seven, eight, eight, seven years ago, maybe eight years ago. Okay. And I would get him to buy me. And then I got the farmer to grow the ACDC. And he grew a giant ACDC plant and he told me it was his worst looking plant in the entire garden and he'd never do it again. And I'm like, yeah, damn, you know? And we, and we made it into medicine, but we didn't really understand what we even had at the time. 
And then I met the village, and the village got me the ACDC cut. Kind of as like a haha, grow this. Because it's the worst growing plant I've ever grown. It's frail and thin, and it doesn't like wind, and it doesn't like sun, and it doesn't. So it's just the most sensitive, fragile plant we've ever grown. And he's like, there you go, grow these. You want to do CBD? Here you go. Because <laughs> no, like we all wanted CBD, but no one wanted to grow it. Right. Because it was such a, we all knew it was such a pain. So then I just started growing it. And my first crop was pretty rough because I didn't know I needed shade cloth and it, you know, didn't like water. And it's just, just like all these weird things that are counterintuitive. So we started growing the ACDC and my first real drops of it, I made everything into live resin. Because this is like probably six or seven years ago then. Okay. Made everything into live resin. No one knew what it was, what live resin was, and no one wanted it. And I got a bunch of it back from the store. And that's when I was like, okay, nobody wants to dab this stuff. It was some of the terpiest dabs I ever made. The Pennywise live resin, it was crazy. But no one knew what CBD was, let alone what live resin was. And it was like way ahead of the time. And that's like, right. it's funny. Like looking back, it's pretty funny. We were trying to do CBD live resin when no one really knew what either were. But so I thought it was cool. My friends, my, my glass blower, we thought it was the best thing in the world. You know? Right. So I was like, and I thought it tasted like Tootsie Rolls. And anyways. Why do you think it, I guess, the, the was not popular? The stores didn't know what they had or what it was or what it did. And neither did we. We were still figuring it out. We dabbed it. We were just dabbing live CBD live resin. Like, whoa, my body's tingling. This is amazing. And the live resin was being made with? With butane. Okay. And you call it live, and that's kind of a term that's still used. Live resin from fresh frozen material instead of dried material. Right. So, you know, it would be similar to, I guess, prepping material for a wash. For hash, yeah, similar. Yeah. Exactly. Is that a practice that you had picked up from making hash? Oh, man. Why did I start doing fresh? Fr- I don't... I just... Yeah, I definitely did dry at first, and then we switched to fresh at some point. And once I figured out how to do it, I was just like, why would I ever dry material again? Just to dry out the terps? What's, what's more drying material? And I had freezers. It was just too easy. I had freezers. I, was, I knew how to do it already, you know? Right. And I was just, you know, I was like, terps. Yeah. <laughs> more terps, the better. <laughs> right? <laughs> so the live resin doesn't work, and then what do you Well, do? I mean, the, the, I got it. You know, a little bit of returns from the store, which is my only returns I've ever had in my entire career. And, and I was like, all right, I got to rethink the CBD thing. People don't want to dab it. And, and the people who are hitting me up about CBD don't dab or smoke. And they're terrified of cannabis in general. And that's when I was like, we got to find a way to dilute the potency to a controlled dose that people can take and it won't get them high. And that's when we started making the capsules. And it was like the side project that no one wanted to do, you know, because it's just making capsules really makes your brain go funny, your eyes cross and your brain go funny. Right. And it was like, people need this. One of my big influences was Evolution Extracts. He was one of the first CBD patients that was like a serious CBD patient that I knew. And he would, <laughs> he would put some olive oil in a spoon and like a dab of CBD oil. And then he'd hit it with a torch and warm it up and decarb it. Blow on it and eat it. And he's like, I swear this is the only thing that helps me. And I was like, you wouldn't go through all that if it, and you weren't telling the truth, you know? And I started, you know, like, and he tell, he's telling me, you have to eat it. Right. You have to eat it. You have to eat a lot. 
So if you tell me a little bit, it's not going to do it. And that was like some of my first, first advice about CBD was for evolution. And, uh, yeah, then we started making the caps and. And again, the caps are made how? Like the extraction? Back then we were doing BHO. Okay. Now we're doing CO2. Well, we're not person, but we're buying CO2. Right. And I feel like that's the cleanest, in a way, crude oil, which I'm using the word crude in a good way because it has all the cannabinoids in it and I get to decarb it, which means it's not 100% decarbed, which I think is too much. And I'm curious about, you know, the material that that's coming from. Well, we work with a really nice farm right now. Just one. He's a super good guy. I haven't put his name out there yet because as soon as I do, everyone and their mom is going to hit him up and try to get my material from me. And that's just the life we live. And he makes some of the dankest CBD flour that we've seen so far. And because of this new CBD flour market, we're paying a good amount of money for flour because I don't want biomass. And biomass is a whole other conversation. But what that really means is just everything above ground. And I don't want that. I want nice nugs. I don't want stems. I don't want, you know. I've always believed that the flowers produce a better extract than the trim. And people have argued with that, but that's how I believe, and I believe that 100%. And so I want to make my caps from as little trim as possible. So we're basically buying the same flowers that people buy in eighth jars, and then we're getting that extracted, and that's how we make a CO2 hemp oil that's not gross. Right. It's because it's from good flowers. And this farmer makes very resinous flowers. We get real good yields off his flower. It's, I mean, that's what happens when you remove all the leaf and the stem and all the garbage. You get a good yield and a quality product. And that's just, I've taken that from the cannabis industry over the hemp industry. And it's definitely changing. The price of hemp flour used to be cheap. And now with everyone smoking hemp flour, the price has gone up. It just is what it is, you know. Do you feel like the quality of the hemp has also gone up? Well... That's a very good question. I feel like because of the new hemp market where people are smoking pre-aethed jars of hemp flour, there is now an incentive to grow higher quality flour like my friends you visited today. People weren't growing hemp flour under plastic because it's just too expensive. They're growing it out in the field, which is how 99-something percent of hemp is grown, just in fields, rained on, snowed on, whatever your climate is. But, I mean, you saw a testament today, people growing hemp the way that I would grow high-end cannabis. Yeah, shout so out it's to like, the Shout out to the chillers only. Yeah. So it's, I can't say that I've seen hemp flour that look as good as, you know, the best cannabis flour, but they're working on it. They're trying to get there because the price of hemp flour wholesale has gone up. So there's incentive to grow higher quality. It's just, there's a race to the bottom, but now there's this very small race to the top too for people trying to get the high end everyone asks me what hemp flour do i smoke and I, <laughs> and that's a hard question you know it's even the best one you're gonna end up smoking old product because they're not pulling hemp flowers year round it's mostly all full term right you don't see a lot of light depth off-season hemp which is really what you're going to need for there to be a high quality flower year round you're going to need to start pulling off-season because any flower older than you know, like six months, it's no good. My opinion, I'm going to get blown up for this, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't smoke old flowers, fam. You know, speaking on CBD, you, so you, you, know, you started with the live resin, you moved on to the caps, and then now you're making a few other products. You're making some balm and some lotion. And, 
you know, we start doing what we do and what we love and what we believe in, which is the caps. Like I've seen those change so many people's life, but I get a lot of requests for other things. So we take quite a bit of time and we maybe, you know, we try to make what people want. We still haven't made the carts. I'm feeling very weary about carts right now. With everything that's going on, I still don't know if I'm going to be a part of that. And people you know, are demanding, please, we need something that's, you know, portable and discreet. And then it's, we'll see. I'm waiting to figure out what happens with the carts. Right now, I feel like it's very untested. Doesn't have this hundred year history like smoking flour and hash. And we're just starting to see the fallout from it. I'm concerned. concerned. Yeah, I mean, I love car. I love puffing on carts on the road and in public and I'll do it too. I'll do it too, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think if you have the ability to be patient about it, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. You know, speaking on changing people's lives, I know you were involved or are involved with a project called Waldo on Weed, which has turned, I guess, into a documentary. Yeah, they made a pretty serious documentary about it. And so I wanted to, you know, ask you what your role was in that and, you know, to tell the audience a little bit about that story. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is in the movie too, but I don't know how many years ago it was now. It had to be like five so it had to be about five years ago someone hits me up with a picture of a baby with this story basically saying he started chemo today and he's dying from the chemo he won't eat and he won't feed and he won't poop and he has more chemo to do and we think our baby's gonna die what and i told him like you know i make this cbd oil but it's at the store already and i can't mail it to you because i don't know you and it was it was jerry bucket and I'm like, I don't know you guy, but you know, it's at the store. I made it, I extracted it. It's clean. I can promise you it's clean. I grew this shit. And they jumped on an airplane and flew to California and got it. And then they sent me another picture. And this is basically 30 minutes after he took the oil, he was breastfeeding. And they're like, dude, you saved his fucking life. He's already ate and pooped and all the stuff that he wasn't doing before the CBD oil. And, and it was cool because I like coach him through decarbing it. And diluting it and like, you know, it was very, it was just a little vial of raw CBD oil. And so they had to do the work and, you know, cook it and all. And, right. And then, and then he was cancer free. And then they gave me, sent me a message like a year and a half later. And they're like, you know, cancer's back. I'm like, fuck, fuck. Well, we got, here we go again. And then we started the CBD oil up and, and eventually I, I end up meeting them and spending good time with them. And now I feel like they're extended family and. Waldo's really a special kid and it's pretty cool how it all went down and, and brought us all together and now they're some of my best friends and it's you know Waldo's healthy and huge and, <laughs> and all that it's it's pretty crazy because when I started doing it I never really thought too far ahead about where this is going to lead I was just like I need to do this because my fucking mom died and there wasn't any CBD available when she had cancer so I'm gonna make this for other people and then one by one, I started hearing from people and it was pretty like extreme. Like this guy's probably not going to like me saying this, but one guy told me basically I moved across the country so I could have reliable access to your CBD and your hash because I was basically paying someone to go across. The- he was too sick to travel, paying someone to go across the country, get it for him and bring it to him. And the guy ripped him off. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm too sick for this shit. I'm moving to California. And that's when I was like, Holy moly, this is serious. Well, I better grow more CBD. Because, <laughs> you know, I was just doing a couple plants. I didn't, I was doing, I started like one plant, and then I would do three plants. And 
you know, we were limited by plant count in California under the medical system. So I could only do so many plants and I was trying to grow hash and I was trying to, you know, pheno hunt. I had so many things going on all at once. It was just pretty crazy. Back in those days, I would wake up at 8 a.m. and I made hash and I made oil and I grew and I packaged. And between 8 a.m. and midnight, I had a timer that would go every 15 minutes to cycle me between my different tasks that I had to do. To make it through, I would do four extractions, one wash, a grape, and water the plants or something like that. And it took, you know, from 8 a.m. to midnight to do all that. Yeah. (laughs) Outside of that, I'm sure that takes discipline as well. And then after a little while, and then I started working at the dab bar in Hopland, which was like, that was really cool. It was grueling. I had to drive over an hour to get there. And I had all this other stuff I should have been doing. But it was really cool because I got to hang out with all my customers and patients. And I use those terms kind of interchangeably, you know. And the CBD people would come in and talk to me and the hash people. And I got to meet all sorts of it was It was really cool. We had a dab bar before anyone really thought about having a dab bar. And it doesn't exist anymore. But at the time, it was like very progressive and cool. And, and, right. and I would just go there just to meet. You know, everyone wanted to ask me questions and be like, well, because it was shatter was new and ice wax was new. And everyone wanted to know what the hell was going on. This is also, like you said, about six or seven years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Up in Hopland, maybe, yeah, like maybe seven, eight or something. I lose track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but it is, you know. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a busy, busy years. I've moved a bunch of times. Industry's changed quite a bit. Uh, like you said, I've kind of retired from hash. It's really nice. <laughs> you know, I make... I make all my hash myself. This is like something I've been waiting to tell everyone for a period there, about maybe six years ago, seven years ago. I actually had a hash apprentice. Over six months, I transitioned him into making ice wax for me. And after six months, he took over and did everything from wash to packaging for about a year. And a few people noticed, but most people really had no idea. And he's really the only like full-time employee I ever had skunk work shout out you're fucking kick ass man kicked ass that guy <laughs> and it was cool like some weird shit but I feel like because of our histories we were both physically predisposed to microplaning hash because he played violin and I rock climbed so we both had like weird fast strong hands which helped you microplaning interesting and especially like the violin I could see that really translating to the microplane well, and I'm he's one of the few people I'm really proud of his microplaning. And yeah, anyways. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I never heard about the correlation of like hand strength. Yeah, I mean, it's a physical process. It's grueling. If you're trying to do it on any kind of scale, it's absolutely grueling to move your hands as fast as you can with a little bit of pressure for hours. And it's repetitive and it's stress. And he really helped me out. And that's like, he took that over so that I could focus on the garden, making oil, making caps, making roll-ups. I had so many freaking jobs that it was just like to find someone who, you know, he res- took the time over six months to really learn how to replicate what I do. You know, he started, started microplaning the lower grades, worked his way up to microplaning in the 90 and the one, you know? And it was, it was such a relief to find. So finding someone to help you who's rock solid these days is so hard. Anyway, so that was... And then I, you know, I had another buddy who helped me in the garden. 
because we built a cold frame and we built hoops and we leveled. And the Rise Ranch story is that I built a cold frame and a hoop and I had some full sun plants in the middle of an old permaculture garden, no-till permaculture garden, that had no vehicular access. So everything had to be carried in through a little skinny dirt trail. And it because it was in the middle of a giant no-till situation, there's very little dust. And that is what I truly felt like what made my hash special was that it was in the middle of this green, lush field for, for it was an old garden, basically. Right. That I transitioned into a cannabis garden without tilling or breaking land or bringing in trucks or power equipment. You know, everyone loves whipping around in their trucks and their ATVs, and but all that puts up dust. So every brick we carried in by hand, every bag of soil we carried in by hand, we did about... 300 wheelbarrow trips of soil. It was just, that's how we built the garden up. And it was a shit ton of work and it took forever, but it took years. (laughs) But because of that, it was a very low dust situation. And that's like my advice to everyone out there who wants to grow under the sun is to handle your dust situation because the dust shows in the hash. And I mean, some of that I'm sure just depends on how that's kind of positioned. Yeah, where the road is and all that. You know, we were on the long dead end on a road that only we drove on and it was surrounded by a field that we never tilled. So it was, it was just, it was a blessed situation to end up with that garden. But it wasn't permittable or licensable, whatever the word is. And when you say that you can see the dirt in the hash. Oh, yeah. You know, is that just a literal thing where... You can see the you dirt. You can see the specks of dust, little black specks of dust, yeah, in, in most hash. That's the one thing where damn rock wool, you know, sterile gardening wins is there's no dust. But all that shit tastes like cardboard, so it's <laughs> what it is. You go, you know, I'd rather have terps and organic, naturally sun-grown resin. In my opinion, and you can quote me on this one forever, sun, the sun in the right place always beats indoor. Always, always beats indoor. And that's just... I mean, it makes there's more lumens. And, and if you get the right climate with the right more lumen, it's just anyways. Yeah, I mean, the sun, that, I, don't, I just don't think it's comparable to even consider indoor lights capable of what the sun is capable. I mean, I've made some really beautiful indoor hash. I really have. But I feel like my... It's that, not that it's not beautiful. It's just that I think the complexity of like... Yeah, I think the flavor is different. I feel like the high is different. Yeah, all of this stuff changes. On some metaphysical level, it's probably a more positive product. You know, that's just how I... That's but again, yeah, that's, <laughs> my, that's my own personal opinion as well. So where does the hash story begin, though? Okay, so I have asthma, and I started making hash in high school, which was like late 90s. And, and this is where? In Wisconsin. I bought... In Wisconsin, I had a plug for really good indoor. It was really expensive. And it was some bullshit to get it, but it was quality indoor, fresh, high-grade indoor. And I would pull every little leaf off everything, every little untrimmed, unperfectly, and I would hash that. And then little buds, I would hash those, just dry sift in a little box. Because I, even back then, I could only take a few bong rips a day, and then my asthma would be triggered. So I would space those few bong rips out. But I'm like, damn, I want to smoke more weed than this. <laughs> But my lungs aren't letting me. What am I going to do? Started making hash. And my mom was like, and I just put it on top of flour and smoke it. And my mom was like, that's not how you smoke hash. 
get a glass jar and a pen. So I got the glass jar and the pen, and I'm like, this is whack. There's gotta be a better way to smoke hash than this. So I went back to like put it on top of flour, and you know, back then it was like I'd buy an ounce and like trim every little bud and then hash a little bit of trim I got, you know? So it wasn't a lot. And I cherished and, you know, hoarded every little hit of hash I got and I didn't <laughs> share it with anyone. Cause like, fuck you, you don't have asthma. You can see. I thought, here's a bong rip of some dank ass weed. 350 bucks an ounce. You can smoke that all day, but you don't get to smoke my hash, buddy. And they're like, that looks good. I'm like, yeah, it does. And I would notice some shit would melt and some shit wouldn't. And I'm like, that's weird. And I remember telling my mom, like, hey mom, what about this like hash that melts to nothing? And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's, that's not like the hash I smoked. So actually tying those two things together, talk about this glass and pin system you said so old school hash you get a glass jar and a pin and you pull the point and you put a little thing of hash on it you light it on fire blow it out and it just kind of slowly embers and the jar fills with hash and you can like <sighs> put a straw in there yeah and that's how my mom told me that's how people she's like that's how people smoke hash and i'm like all right well whatever you say i'll try it and i'm like nah, this kind of works it tastes weird i didn't like the like the Hash didn't taste right to me. I don't know. So I didn't, I kind of abandoned that. And then I would just put it on top of flour and, you know, and smoke the flour. And I did that for years and years and years. Just a lot of times I put the hash in the flour and then throw the flour out and just put more hash in. You know, and I would just burn the hash. And then in college, I kind of graduated from like ounces to packs. And then I would keef them. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, we would get, we, we get beasters, only. yeah. We get beasters, and if the beasters look really good and like it wasn't keefed already, because a lot of times that shit was, I would just take it and very gently try to get like two or three grams off the pound, and then I had my little head smoke. That's and then, funny, you know. And then me and my my boys, I'd share it with them. Yeah, you know what I mean. We had like a little it was kind of a skimming, but we had kind of like a level. We had like a. <laughs> Yeah, we had like a little collective going back then of sorts. Yeah. And we basically brought the $40 eighth to school, which was unheard of. And we put everyone else out of business. And then we told the other dealers like, yo, $40 eighth, man, this is what's up. Like everyone's happy, but you. And they're like, I can't sell weed at 40. And I'm like, well, you could buy ounces for me at straight wholesale. And that's the best I can do for you, you know? And they're like, damn you, Matt. And you're fucking $40 eighths. And I'm like, this is Beasters. Like this shit ain't even good. Like I've been smoking good weed for a long time. I knew that beasters weren't. What's up, you know? So, <laughs> so we, you know, we did our thing in college, and then started growing. After freshman year, I lived on campus, and then after that, I moved off. I started growing in my closet, and this in 400, 250 watt, and then I graduated to 400 watts, and then I got two of those, and I just slowly started growing. I was ordering seeds in the mail from Emory straight to college, and then so I don't know if I should say this shit. Basically, the college I went to. Everyone that works there is a student. So I would just be like, yo, homie who works in the post office box, I'm getting a fucking package from Canada today. Make sure that shit gets to me quick because I, yeah. I don't want anyone else to know, you know, your boss or whoever to know about that shit. So I was ordering really like high quality Blueberry Northern Lights. It was called Big Blue. I was trying, that's like what I decided I wanted to grow. I have no idea how I came to that decision. But that's what I said. I started growing Big Blue and all that. And this is also in Wisconsin. Like, no, this is in North Carolina. North Carolina I went to school okay. in Asheville, North Carolina. And I started growing my little flavors, trying to, I was doing like Mazar and like old, this is all old school. This was like early 2000s. Yeah. 
And what's his seed bank called again? The, it was Mark the, Emery. Yeah, he's like the, the famous seed guy. He got yeah, busted yeah, and sure. went to jail for that shit. But he sold seeds, to, you know. I he mean, still he had a does. huge catalog. Yeah, he still does. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, And like my first crop was some of the dankest weed I've ever seen. And I just grew organic and I just treated him well. And I, you know, I kind of, I'd already, by that point, I'd already grown in my closet in high school. So I kind of knew what was up a little, but like. And how did you have like, I guess, knowledge? <sighs> I had magazine. My grandma and mom both raised me to garden. I worked in their gardens. So I kind of knew about plants in general. And then good old High Times magazines for kids to read, you know, I was the kid reading that shit. And got some seeds out of some really, uh, back in my day, the, the only dank weed was AK-47 and like bubble gum. And that was like, that's what my our indoor guy had back in the 90s. And then something big happened and Chemdog came and he's like, listen, I'm never growing that other shit again. This Chemdog is the next big thing. It's going to change weed. And he didn't call it Chemdog. He just called it Chem. I didn't, the dog part I learned later. And... He's like, this chem dog's stronger than anything I've ever grown before. And the prices just went up. And it's like, okay. And I smoked something that like, made me feel sick. <laughs> Little high school Matt smoking some chem. And he said, it's called chem because it likes to be grown with chemicals. And I'm like, oh, fuck. This guy's poisoning me for <laughs> sure. <laughs> but what are you going to do? That was my guy, man. It's all that was. And it was the strongest weed I've ever seen. I remember we would get an ounce of it and open it up. And I lived in a townhome at the time. And I guarantee that people on both sides of that townhouse could smell that shit through the walls. It was so, it was so, it was so dank. And I was just a kid in high school. What nice year thing. was this? Just I like to give. This is like 98, 99, somewhere okay. in there. That's when the chem dogs showed up. And that's like historically when it showed up. And I'm from the Midwest. It's like, it all, it all makes sense. Right. It all makes sense. And then yeah, I went to school and was growing there, growing in my closets. That was, I got. I got sent home for microbiology one day because it was like the day before harvest and I kept my clothes in the closet, but the other half of the closet was my grow. And the the TA was like, dude, you smell way too strong. You just got to go. Like, you smell great, but you smell way too strong. And the teacher asked me to ask you to leave. And it's like, oh shit, I'm about to harvest like tonight. Sorry about that. I got to wash all my clothes. And that's just the life we're living, you know, was, I went to hippie college, so it was chill. <laughs> That's funny. And then I guess at what point did you decide to move out to California? Okay, so I got suspended from college. People don't know this. After my junior year for a bunch of international weed crimes. Basically, I brought weed on an international trip to the Bahamas and got everybody high. Because what, what am I going to do? They're like, can I hit that? It's like, yeah. What the fuck? We're in the Bahamas. I grew this shit. You know, but the... Anyways... So they suspended me for a semester, and I was like, fuck school, I got everything I need out of this education. I'm gonna go grow weed on the West Coast. I wanna take another opportunity to thank our Patreon community for their continued support and for allowing us to produce episode 15. We're thankful for each and every one of you. I wanted to also give a special shout out to some of our biggest contributors, including Garrett and Daniel from Connecticut, Kevin from Lifted and Dina, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, Jensen, a.k.a. Alkaline Mango, Hashmakers Union 73, David from Totem Solventless in California, the homies from Mission Melts in Massachusetts, Burp and Terps in Washington, Jendo420, whose interview is coming up in May, and Morgan and Garrett from California. 
We thank each and every one of you for your support. Now back to the episode. And I moved to the West Coast, just like that. And it was like, it was hard. Like, it took six weeks to find a place to live and ended up having to move to a town that I wasn't planning to move to. And it was just hard knocks because they took one look at me and they're like, this dude's a grower. And they would tell me, like, you look like a grower. Little, what was I, like 22-year-old Matt at that point. And they're like, you look, like, we rented you, but you look like a grower. And it's like, fuck. <laughs> I do. <laughs> no idea. I've been doing it for years already. You know what I mean? It's in my soul. It's, it's on my face. And at what point did you kind of, I guess, find a, a more like stable situation? Well, I moved to the West Coast, started working in the restaurant industry, kind of lived that double life for a while. I was growing at home and working full time. And I'd be like, have to tell my boss, like, oh, shit, my landlord wants to come inspect. I got to break down my whole grow room and put it in a moving truck. Like, I need a half a day off. And they're like, fuck, again? And it's like, uh, every, every 11 months, I got to deal with this shit. So I lived that life for a while, the moving right before the landlord came to look and just bouncing out of that house and going to the next house and doing that life. And then I moved to California, and that's about when my mom passed away. And so I had to leave California, go do family stuff. Made it back out. I was pretty wrecked. So I just spent some time as a trimmer grain in Mendo, just like checking out the scene. Did that. Went and worked with my homies in Sonoma County. They sent me up to Trinity and Humboldt. So I kind of like worked the whole NorCal okay. circuit just to like exp- try to figure out where I want to be. And I realized I want to be in Sonoma County because there's a I don't want to say anything negative, but I realized I want to be in Sonoma County. That is a really beautiful place. The quality of the cannabis there was higher than I was finding anywhere else. And that's where I want to be. And so I ended up staying there. I got a job as a chef and I was doing the whole double life thing. It was like that restaurant was beyond its time too. We were doing like vegetarian seafood only. So it was like no real meat. Everything was sourced within 30 miles. It was like way too healthy and hippie and all that. And that place ended up closing and owing me a bunch of paychecks because I was a chef and you're the chef. You're the one, you're the first one to not cash your paycheck. And so I was like, you know what? Fuck the fucking restaurant industry. That was fun and all and, you know, rewarding and artistic, but I'm going to go work in the weed industry because this is what I really love. And I got a job as a bud tender at a dispensary. And I learned a shit ton there, to be honest. People are always like, oh, bud tenders. Uh. I learned so much by being in the back room and just seeing how purchasing work, how sales worked. Just the whole, I got to see the whole, as I'd already been a grower and a hash maker. I made clones. I made edibles. I had already done all that, but I didn't know about the retail end of it. And it was really fascinating to me. And I got in there. This is like the Rice creation story, basically. I got in there and... I was making some bomb fresh frozen hash and it wouldn't hit the shelf. And I'd sell it to the store and I would never see it on the shelf. And eventually I, with a buyer, I'm like, what the fuck is my hash, dude? Like, I know you have some amazing hash of mine. He's like, oh, I bought all that at wholesale. That's in my fridge. Like, your hash doesn't hit the shelf. And I was like, what the hell? Like, no wonder I haven't, I've been working here for three months and I haven't seen my hash hit the shelf. He's like, yeah, guy, I'm not gonna let that go. It was like little batches. Fresh frozen hash, no one had really ever seen anything like that. And I was like, 
I want more money per gram. What do you mean? Like, this is the best hash you've ever seen and it doesn't get to hit the shelf. Like, fuck that. I'm, I'm getting $15 a gram right now. I'm working my ass off. I want 20. And he said, the only way you're getting more money per gram is if you prepackage it, brand yourself, and have a following. And I was like, fuck, I quit. <laughs> and that was, that was it. I took the job teaching for Oaksteram the next day because they had been trying to hire me, but I was too busy working as a bud tender. So took the job working for Oaksterdam. They paid 20 times what the freaking dispensary paid. So I started teaching, which was really a really cool experience. I got to like find my voice by standing in front of big crowds of people who are twice my age and trying to teach them about making hash and growing weed, making edibles and all that. And then uh, this is a really funny story. There was one guy who I worked with and he grew amazing weed. And he only worked one day a week and he showed up whenever he wanted. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? What? And I wanted to work for him. Because I was like, this guy is the fucking shit. This is the coolest guy I ever met. His weed's amazing. His hash is amazing. Shows up one day a week. Everyone loves this guy. And he does four hours late. No one cares. Like, who is this guy? And I went and waited. I just hung out at the Whole Foods in his town until I bumped into him. It took like three days because it's like the center of that town. (laughs) And he's like, hey. And I'm like, yo. I've been waiting. I was hoping I'd run into you. <laughs> Do you got any trim work? And he's like, mm, I'm real selective about who I let trim for me, but I'll give you a shot. And I got in and I got on his trim team and I made it past, you know, it's hard being a dude trying to get a job trimming. Just, I don't think I need to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> so I made it onto basically the dankest farmer I knew, trim team, and he wouldn't let me take the trim because he made his own hash. And so I'd show up to trim with my hash. And he'd be like, what the fuck is that? And I'd be like, this is water hash, bro. And he's like, yo, mine doesn't look like that. And I'd be like, please let me buy your trim. I will pay you money for your trim. And he's like, ah, I make hash. I like making hash. And so after like a while of him being like, yo, can I get a, can I get a dab of that hash? And I'm like, he's like, all right, you can, you can make my hash, but I want some product back. And, this, and so I started, at that point, I started working for him and his partner. And they were harvesting every week and they were trimming fresh because their turnaround was so quick. And I got fresh trim every week. And like the real story is that my tech wasn't good enough to dry the hash so that I'd be happy with it. It would all cake fast. And I was like, I need to change something up. This fucking bubble man tech is some bullshit. (laughs) I need to, I need to figure this sieve is not working. This knife is not working. I need to figure out a way to separate this hash better so that it will dry better because I know I could do a better job. And then I basically went to my roll kit, which is what chefs call their knives, and I had my microplate in there. And I was like, you know what? Fucking try this thing. And I tried it and it kind of worked. And I was like, you know what? Let me go get a new one that's actually sharp because I've worn this thing out in the kitchen. Let me get a new one and see if this actually works. And I did it and it kind of worked. And I was like, you know, all these fucking light bulbs going off in my head. Like, I'm going to make a new way to hand separate hash and dry it. And I can already tell just from looking at it that it's a finer separation, especially for fresh frozen. That was the thing. I was doing fresh frozen, which is very difficult to work with. It's, and it's much harder to separate because it has such high terpene levels. So it's curious to me that you wanted to work with this guy's material because it was good. But his hash... I could see looking at his hash that it could be amazing. And so what's the difference? The color. 
What's the difference between his take and your take that was making water, that difference? Moisture. It's really hard to get the water out of hash in an air drying environment. You have to get really good separation. You have to have the right parameters in your environment. It ends up taking quite a bit of control and perfectionism. And not everybody feels that way about hash. Back then, the top price for hash was $15 a gram. So there's no incentive for you to spend all this time and money making it better when the max out price was 15. So I had to create a new market for high-end hash because there was none. And that's <laughs> that was the whole Matt Rise, Ice Wax. Basically, I went on the forums and started posting it. And you could tell by just that I bought a $300 Nikon so I could get decent pictures because cell, cell phone cameras weren't really a thing back then. Yeah, that's true. They were terrible. And I bought a $300 Nikon because I was just, you know, that's my budget. <laughs> and uh, started taking pictures of some of the fresh, frozen, sour, and OG. And then I started washing my garden, my indoor, like the whole, the flowers. And that was the first time I really got to work with fresh, frozen flowers was my own garden. And it made the fucking best hash I'd ever seen in my life. It made amazing pictures. And I was like, whoa, this is serious. Fresh frozen flowers. This is this is serious hash, and it made you know still some of them, some not some of the best made, but some of the you know I haven't really seen full melt Chernobyl and stuff like that because people just don't do it. The yields are too low, and, and it was just I was just washing whatever the hell I was growing, hoping it would turn out into melt. I really had right, right, and then yeah, and then. What are some other strains outside of the Chernobyl that you were working with at the time? Back then, I was growing a bunch of TGA, and I was growing Blue Dream. I did a crop of Blue Dream, and I was growing Sour Diesel, because that, like, Blue Dream and Sour Diesel were the two main strains. They kind of still are in a lot of ways. And then I was growing TGA seeds from Sub, because that was the seeds I could get from the store, right? I wasn't getting it from the mail anymore. I was going to dispensaries and buying seeds and, right. and all that. And, and he had a little video of his own. Yeah, he was, he was trying to make cash. Everyone was trying to make... Hash back then, you know, it was like bubble hash has always been cool among the people who really love weed because eventually your tolerance goes up and smoking hash makes everything kind of work. You know what I mean? So everyone loves hash when you get real deep into weed. So outside of you, I guess, experimenting with it, you hadn't heard of anybody else using the microplane to break down the material? No, I never heard of that. Never seen that anywhere. It was just, it was in my kit with my knives. Basically, I would sieve it. And if I didn't like the way it fell, I'd go back in with a knife and try to further separate it. Right. And I was like, this is like, this doesn't make sense. There's got to be a better way to do this. What can, you know, what am I trying to do here? What's a better approach to this? Let me try this tool that I already own. And it kind of worked, like I said. And then I'm like, let me get a new one to see if this, they give it a fair shot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they, they wear down. And then basically the real thing was those two farmers I worked with switched from growing Jack to sour and all of a sudden the hash got really good and really pretty and I was like oh sour diesel okay I like you I like this and then you know because they were harvesting them like every week twice a week sometimes and then fall was just crazy it's cropped over you know so I had a lot of material I just always had fresh frozen material in the freezer that anytime I had so basically I would go trim all day and then I'd get home like seven or eight and then I'd start making hash until like midnight one or two and I go to bed and I wake up and go back and trim and that was like the only time I had to squeeze in hash making was late at night right which is when I got into the hole I need to work when it's cold it makes total sense it's like I'm already working at night and I've noticed how much easier it is when everything's cold 
why don't I take this to another level and start working in cold rooms instead of waiting for nighttime to work, right? Like, like a grown-up, I want to take control of the situation and, and then I can work whenever I have, you know, whenever I have time. It doesn't really matter what the weather's like. Again, was the cold something that was relatively new at the time? Like, did people know that working in cold <sighs> I think they. I think they probably knew because people, the thing is I worked at that dispensary and like most of the dudes that worked there were hash heads and made hash and sold hash to the store. And so we kind of all shared tech with each other. And there were guys back then doing really high grade full melt dry sift. And then there were us doing the bubble and it was like, we're all a bunch of hash heads and we're all kind of sharing tech. But then again, everyone in the hash world's really like secretive about what they're doing. So it was like a weird, like feeling each other out process and kind of sharing what you felt comfortable sharing. And then the guy who made shitty hash was like, oh, this is how I do everything. I bake it in the oven until it's dry. And it's like, oh, no wonder you don't mind telling us how you, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, that guy, he's good. He's a good guy. That's funny, man. And I know you brought it up a little bit, but the, I think it was roll it up, right? That you had the... That was like my major, my major thread wound up on Roll It Up because they ended up being the only ones who had really let me do what I was trying to do. The way I came out with this ice wax thing, I was like, listen, what's up, everyone? My name is Matt, Professor Matt Rise, and I'm about to teach y'all how to make ice wax. And this is the fucking new form of hash, and it's the shit. You just look at my pics. And people were like, God, well, first I came and just posting pics. And then the response was pretty much, if you don't make a tutorial, you're a piece of shit because you've created a better way to make hash. And we can tell from your pics, it looks amazing. And if you don't share this with us, you're a bad person. And I was like, oof, you might be right. So I went and, <coughs> I went and made that terrible tutorial that's on YouTube. It was terribly filmed. I was so nervous making it. It was the first time I'd filmed myself. I haven't filmed myself since, really. And I just went on because I was like, all right, y'all are going to see me. Y'all are going to make some hash. And it was at like the very early stages of ice wax. I didn't really know what I was doing yet. But then that roll it up thread, you could basically watch me figure out how to make ice wax just by going through the thread. And that's, and that's why I think like the real value is, is like reading through it to see the watching me discover how to make this. So you don't have to go through the damn mistakes yourself. Because anyone can figure out how to do this. It just takes a bunch of trial and error. Right. And those errors get real expensive. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, there, there's so many different ways it can go wrong. You know? And uh, your farmer needs to get paid no matter what you're doing as a hash maker. Right. So you have a responsibility to do a good job and not fuck it up, you know? Right. So trying to do new shit, I ended up having to really just work with my own garden. And that's like how I pioneered the microplaning. It was just messing around with my own resin because if it didn't turn out good or whatever, I'm just going to keep it and smoke it. And speaking on your own garden, I know you used to use the phrase beyond organic. Can you get a little bit into what that term meant and why you use it? Well, the term organic is owned. It's not a, it's owned by the USDA and defined It's like 86% organic, I believe. And to me, that's not what we're trying to do. Like, and a paid for organic certification on a product doesn't make it good enough for me to use. And I don't really think that's what organics is about. So what we were trying to do was, you know, incorporate our garden into nature by not tilling, having this huge permaculture garden surrounded. We have 
fruit and artichokes and flowers, and we had a huge pollinator garden, and we were just doing everything we could to help our garden give back, because we were definitely taking, too. Yeah. And that's like, Beyond Organic's more of an ethic than like a specific thing. There's a million different things you can do to go beyond USDA organic. And that's like, and that's popular now. There's a little, everyone's doing their own take on it. You know what I mean? There's a lot of permaculture, KNF, no-till, blah, blah, blah. It's all, it's all grouped under Beyond Organic to me. And I don't like to choose any of those specific labels because they're all, in my opinion, very limiting to say I do permaculture, just permaculture. And I do KNF, just KNF. I like to, I'm taking a little bit of everything. That's kind of how I view it. Right. So I just call it Beyond Organic as like a generic term. And the term ice wax also, does that originate with you? Well, I mean, ice wax existed before me in that uh, it's a type of car wax. But I am the first person to start using the word ice wax referring to hash. And that was, it was I mean, pretty much credit to Nicotee. He was before me. He called his stuff solventless wax. Wax was the term that everyone used for BHO back then. That's how old we are. Everyone called it wax, right? <laughs> and so we were, you know, implying that this is something you can consume the same way BHO is consumed. You can dab it. So he had solventless wax, but Nick owns that term, or at least thinks he owns that term. So I came up with something of my own, which is ice wax. It was short. It was easy to say, kind of float off the mind. Actually, my buddy who worked for the cannabis testing lab back then came up with the term just in a phone conversation. We were joking around about, I got to come up with a new term. Solventless wax is too long. Let's come up with something shorter. You got any ideas? And he's like, oh, ice wax. And I'm like, oh, that's perfect. That's, I'm doing that. That's perfect. It's short to the point. Ice is really, for me and the way I make hash, the ice is a very important part of it. I don't just buy store-bought regular ice. It's like a whole other ethic thing that I do. So to me, like putting the word ice in it was, it was important. It was like, Hey, I'm, you know, even back then I was making my own ice and that, you know, it's a lot of work <laughs> when you can just buy it in bags. Right. And <laughs> you know, let's talk about that since it's so important to you is, uh, why is it so important to you? And what are you doing, you know, by making homemade ice? So come from the restaurant industry in my background, seen a lot of ice makers, a lot of ice machines, some good ones. Some not so good ones. I've, heard, I've done a lot of reading about the ice industry and buying ice at stores. And I basically came to the conclusion that it's not 100% safe and I can't be sure, especially the way I've been living remotely. So I'm just going to start making my own ice because I know it can be clean. And I bought a freezer just for making cubes. And then I bought another an ice machine for making small ice because they have different purposes. And I, you know, I also live remote. So it was really nice to not have to drive to town to get ice. I had to do work, but I didn't have to drive to town. So it's just part of the whole Beyond Organic thing to me. I'm trying to minimize my impact. You know, our, our garden, we didn't use vehicles. We walked everything in, which is crazy. It's crazy. We're talking about hundreds of retaining wall bricks. I don't know how many yards of soil, but many, many, many yards of pot gardening, potting soil, all that. Amendment. Everything got carried in either across the hill or down the hill or up the hill, but it was all on foot. And this was all specifically to keep kind of that dust? To to, to, well, the garden was a per, an old permaculture garden that had never been tilled or driven in. And that was just like the people who passed it to me had that respect for it. Right. And I did everything I could to just continue that. 
We went so far as changing the walking paths because eventually that walking path becomes a rut and then it's a channel for water for runoffs. So we would rotate walking paths. Just all the little things that you don't really think about and unless you really care and you're trying to be intentional, which I was just blessed enough to be handed a garden that was already there. It was already intentional and permacultured out and I just had not fuck it up. <laughs> and that's what we try to do. There's not fucking up. Right. And I know you were at a few different sites over the years. How oh, yeah. many Rise ranches were there? Well, I guess my, my first drops is Matt Rise. That was before I even used the term Rise Ranch. That was a little indoor garden. And then I moved to what I actually called Rise Ranch. I called that. I get a lot of shit for that. But I called that because before I moved in, they had pigs and goats and chickens. And it was called Wild Rose Ranch. And so I just changed that over to Rise Ranch because it sounds good. And we did not keep the animals because that was just crazy. And it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty intense. <laughs> Killing animals is not chill. It's, it's a really intense thing to deal with. So it was, it was good to not have to do that. Then we moved to Oregon and we, had, we lived on a big wildlife preserve up there. It was acreage. And we had a little ranch there and we were thinking and we we're Testing the Oregon hemp engine market and all that. And then we went back to California and we started working on a Prop 64. And basically we got into that and our accountant was like, don't do this. And I'm going to tell us to all you people out here and tell you what my accountant told me is participating in the Prop 64 market is condoning it. And the level of taxation that they've put on this industry is not worth condoning. So we made the conscientious choice to walk away. I can't support them doing this to my people, basically. They've made it so it's not worth it's not worth doing. Unless you sell out to some giant conglomerate. And I mean, I give my peers a lot of shit, but I also love them. And I feel for them and I see all the pain that they're going through from the loss of the Prop 215 market. And I just can't I can't be on the wrong side of that. I feel like history will clearly show that Prop 64 screwed over a lot of people. And it wasn't just. The taxation that they've put out is not fair. It's, it's something that I can't, by paying into it and being a part of it, you are supporting it and condoning it. You are funding the raids on all the fams up in the hills, all that. And I get into big arguments. I've had people try to tell me like, oh, you can change it from within. Yeah, bullshit. I won't hold my breath for that to happen because that's not, it's not going to work like that. It's not going to get changed from within. So we, we made the choice to walk away, which was a really hard choice. I love California. I love the people that have supported me for the past 10 years. I feel like I owe them. I, I'm indebted to them. They've let me live this life for 10 years and they've bought my hash. Anything we make, they bought. So for that one live resin CBD back in the day. <laughs> but everything else that we made, they bought. I, I really appreciate their support. But when it comes down to it, I can't consciously support that system. Right. So we're working in hemp in Oregon, which is a very, in my opinion, it's very fair. It's simple. I feel like they did it right. The only problem is I feel like the hemp in Oregon is screwing over the cannabis industry here because there's giant clouds of pollen floating around this state. And there's nothing you can do about that. That cat is out the bag. It's not going to be undone. Yeah, that's a tough situation. Life finds a way. That's the, that's not my quote. That is old science. Life finds If <laughs> Frogs can change sex. Cannabis plants can change sex. So, and I drive past 50-acre hemp fields on I-5. And there's no way, we were talking about this earlier, there's no way they're walking those rows looking for males 
looking for intersex plants, looking for hermaphrodite plants, which are all separate issues. There's no way. There's just no way. So, But in a way, you know what I mean? Hemp wins in Oregon. This state needed the commerce. It's a good place to go to grow for distillate. <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to get you. <laughs> Switching gears a little, you know, you mentioned it a few times earlier and it really seems to be the beginning for a lot of the hash makers that I've talked to and that's BHO you know I've been following you for some years now and you know I know for a long time it seemed like you're big in educating people about BHO but at the same time it seemed like you were also kind of against it is that fair to say mm, I won't say I'm against BHO, I'm against, I'm against open blasting. Uh, I mean, there's a few people who will argue that's safe, but I don't think that's safe or smart. I don't feel like my chemistry professors will be down with that shit. Did you ever open blast? I never open blasted. I let a fam open blast in my backyard because that's what true fans do. <laughs> Shout out to my fam. He knows who he is. He knows who he is. I love that guy. But no, I never open blasted. I went straight. I saw my homies open blasting. I hit my first apprentice. Shout out Griffin. That's way back. He made BHO. And I let him do it once in my backyard. And I was like, nah, dude, we're not doing this shit anymore. I'm buying a closed loop. We're going to learn how to run this shit. You can't be, this is never going to happen again. Like, we're too old for this shit. Let's grow up. Like, closed loops exist. I don't know. You know, we'll find Like Back then, there was like three people with them. There was one or two companies that made them. It was Tamizium and then a couple, you know, weirdo tweakers that just weld them together and made them. And that's who I ended up getting one from because the Tamiziums were hell expensive. And basically as a reaction to how dangerous and irresponsible the entire BHO industry was, I started making closed loop oil. Back then the saying was that closed loops make black oil. And I set out to prove them wrong and just to show like, and I did. And I did the same way I knew I, I was working with this dispensary and I told the buyer, you buy me the best OG pounds that you see. I don't care what the price is. You get the very best OG because that's what I like. And if I want BHO, it's going to be a strain that doesn't make hash, <laughs> which is real OG. I like that real OG. That shit makes me feel great. Everyone in California loves that shit. SoCal loves that shit. And so I would tell him, you, when you see really high quality OG that you won't pay for because it's out of your price range, you buy it and I'll get it from you. And that's how I would get really good material for my shatter. I would just source it through the dispensary. Say, you know those packs that are too high priced for you? Best ones you ever see? I want those. Because that's... Were you just able to produce enough from them to make it worthwhile in comparison to selling yeah, flowers? I didn't really care too much about the profit. I mean, I always made money on it. There was a few... I started to learn like what strains to avoid for because they had low resin and all that kind of stuff. But... I just didn't care. I just wanted it. It was BHO and I was kind of morally opposed to it because I love hash so much that if I was going to make it, I wanted to make it the very best I could, make it better than everyone. And then what's the way to do that? You buy the pound that no one else can afford because there are a handful of elite growers out there and they know what their shit is worth and they do not budge on price. So I was paying like 36 up for packs and then I was extracting it and hoping I could make money on it. And that was, that was the birth of the Shatter Bros pretty much. <laughs> and then everyone was like, oh my God, this shit's amazing. It's like, you should have seen the weed. 
You know, and everyone else is out there running trim, and I'm buying pounds of the very best weed I can find. Strains, strains that people like, you know what I mean? That people really actually, you can't just blast wherever you get some blue dream because it's there. You know, you gotta, you gotta. So there was some strategizing to it for sure. I was just making what I liked. I was making what I would smoke. And if I'm gonna smoke BHO, it's gonna be some super fire OG, something like that that I just can't get as a solventless. Right. You know? Yeah. And that so makes I was sense. like, let me just make what I like. Hopefully people like what should I like? And then I, yeah, I started, you know, doing CBDs and stuff like that too. Right. But for me, it was all about some OG BHO. So do you feel there's a, a right way? I mean, you know, back then with what I'm assuming now would be considered pretty... Primitive, closed system tech. Yeah. I mean... Was it clean? I mean, I know you've got to try to do what you... I backed the shit out of my... I mean, that's some shit I'll tell you. I backed the shit out of my shatter back in the day because I was so worried about getting in trouble for butane. One of my haters once, I'm not going to say his name, he went and bought my worst BHO I ever made. I, I should have known that someone was going to do this shit. He went and bought it and tested it and it had 800 PPM and he was like, oh, I got you. And I'm like, yo, it's 5,000 PPM in Colorado. I think we're chill. And, <laughs> and I was like, why don't you send me that? You know, he wouldn't, I was like, why don't you send me that lab test? I'd love to see it. And he wouldn't send me it. And it's like, ah, did you even, did you even test it? Or are you making this up? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I would just back the shit out of it and, you know, I had my little tech design so that I could make shatter and it wouldn't wax. And it was some old school primitive closed system shit. But I felt good because I wasn't exposing myself to butane. And I feel like this is what other people are going to fucking hate me fucking say. I feel like exposing yourself to butane while not, you know, toxic is dangerous because it gets you fucking high in a weird, not smart kind of way. And people are all like, oh, I, I like the smell of butane. Yeah, well, it has an effect on you. And that's why people huff it. So I feel like exposing yourself to high levels of butane fumes while you're doing something that's also kind of dangerous, probably a bad combination. It's probably resulted in a lot of uh, accidents and injuries. And that was like, back in my day, everyone was blowing the fuck up. There was, you know, it was public. Everyone was blowing up and popping lungs or collapsing lungs, you call it. That was like really popular back in my day the early dab days everyone was dabbing super shitty bho hella fucking hot and people were dropping lungs there left and right and they'd be like oh man my lung fucking collapsed don't tell anyone it was after a huge dab sesh of unpurged bho and i'm like yeah yeah what are you doing guy but like back then it was just like yo this shit is amazing who cares if it has butane in it it gets me so high i've never felt anything like this before right and I was the guy who's like, yo, 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 I've been smoking hash for a decade already. This shit is dangerous. Like, this is not, it's not made right for one thing, but you guys are blowing up left and right. And like, I'm not going to call anyone out, but there's a lot of big name people in the industry who have either blown up themselves or injured someone else, you know, and they just don't talk about it. But I, I fucking know everyone. And they're like, it's like somehow because of like, my role in this industry, people like to like confess the stupid shit they've done to me. Like, oh, this one time I actually blew up. Oh, it's funny you make jokes about it. And it's like, <laughs> it's weird. They like come and tell me, you know what I mean? They're like, it's real. I really, like, people do blow up. It's like, yeah, I know. Like my friends, you know? <laughs> so I, yeah, like I went on an anti-BHO campaign half because I thought it was hilarious. Like the BHO people were so sensitive. I used to join forums and just refer to it as LFHO, which is lighter fluid hash oil. 
and they would just fucking freak out. They would freak out. This is just BHO. Well, I'd be like, well, it's actually a mix of butane, propane, and you know, isobutane. And yeah, you know, I would just pitch my little, and then I'd post a picture on the can where it says lighter refilled. I would just troll. I, like it was the easy. I used to go after low hanging fruit. And I would just troll people. It was easy and fun. And the BHO boys were just so reactive and they were just so sensitive. It was, it was really funny. Like more so than the hash people. The hash people were sensitive too. But the BHO, back in the day, they, they knew what they were doing with Sketch. And they were just, you know. And I was there calling them out. <laughs> were you still making BHO at that time? I started Shatter Bros like a, like a year and a half, two years after I started Ice Wax. Okay. And then I continued it for you know, like I don't even know, five years, something like that. And then I retired a few years ago, and it's great because it's just, BHO has moved way beyond what I was doing. It's way more complicated and bigger scale and sophisticated. And, yeah, the and machines themselves, I think, are... They've gotten huge and expensive, and it's just colder than I ever imagined going with the, with the liquid nitrogen and just all this stuff. I'm just like... I tap out. I don't want to, I don't want to, I never wanted to do it in the first place. I legit started doing it because the guy, <laughs> they, the dispensary I worked at, I made all the hash. This other guy made all the BHO. That guy's BHO made me and all my friends sick. Legit, like sick, like nauseous, headaches, duh, 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 duh. not in a good way. And then eventually I kind of figured out why. And I was like, this guy's a fucking clown. I'm going to, Start doing this the right way, because if I don't do it, no one is. And then I started saying, hey, this was, you know, golden shatter, cost $100 a gram, made in a closed loop, stainless steel, blah, blah. And that's when people were like, huh, maybe they don't make black oil, because that was what everyone thought, was closing up, you're going to get black oil. And so I started posting pictures, and I made a Shatter Bros account on Facebook, and I pretended it wasn't me. (laughs) I claimed it was two friends of mine, and they were brothers. And everyone just bought it. And I was like, oh, that was easy. (laughs) So a few things. One, you mentioned Shatter Bros. You know, it's really interesting to me that as far as I know, you're one of the very few people to receive a cease and desist from anybody. And this was from Nintendo. This is from Nintendo, from their Oregon-based lawyer, yeah. And... Yeah, I gave it to my lawyer, and he's like, this is serious, what do you want to do? And I'm like, apologize, fuck! And we just apologized and said sorry, went and changed all the product that I had in stores. I went and changed all the stickers on them, and I put the Doom mask over Mario and Luigi, because that was enough to make it not a trademark violation. But the guy I had paid to make my Shatter Bros logo traced that shit and altered it, and it looked a lot like the, you know... Yeah, so it was the we're Mario Brothers. We're, we're Mario Bros, and I, I'm pretty sure I know who tattled on me to them. They sent, Somebody sent them screenshots of basically me and all my friends posting the logos. It was specifically me and my friends, not my customers. So it's like, all right, I think I know who did that. But it's cool. It made me burn that logo and get on to my next one, which is basically just paying homage to Doom because he's like my inspiration and hero in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you're still, you know, kind of currently using that on and off with the CBD products, I see. I don't really use it for packaging. I just like to send the stickers out because people like them, you know. It's, uh, people like the mask. It goes back. It's kind of like a throwback to my old medical marijuana days. Cool. And now my new logo, my MR, is kind of like a derivative of the mask. It kind of has, kind of use some of the mask design in the MR just as a throwback to 
where I came from, you know? Right. But uh, I don't know how much you know about MF Doom. I don't know much. He's like, he says stuff like he came to destroy rap the same way I came to destroy bubble hash. And that's like how I feel about it. Like, I wasn't happy with what people thought good hash was. I was like, this shit isn't even dried right. And the hash expert of the world were saying that this is the best hash in the world. And I was like, this is wet. This is like, this is not even properly dried hash. What the? F-? So were you trying these methods and from that you were coming to that conclusion? I was on the forums, reading everything I could read, trying everything I could try. And once in a while, I would stumble upon what looked like what I call ice wax. Once in a while, I would get a separation to the level that it was like, this looks like dry sift. Which, as someone who made dry sift before ever making water hash for more than a decade, I've always tried to make my water hash look like perfect dry sift. Because to me, that's what trichome heads look like, right? And so all this hash I saw was like brown and orange and dark and red. And just, as a farmer and a dry sift maker, I know this is not what trichomes look like. They're not that color unless they degraded and oxidized in some kind of way. And so I was just trying to make my water hash look like my sift but tastes like fresh frozen. I wanted that fresh frozen flavor, but I wanted it to look like golden dry sift. And I just kept working in that direction. And, and I kind of eventually feel like I got to a place where I was content with the quality of the hash. I feel like it very much, the color of the hash very much matched the color of the hash before, when it was still fresh. There, so there wasn't any degradation going on. And I'm not the only one. There's definitely a handful of people who figured out how to microplane hash to this level where it looks like dry sift. Right. But it tastes like fresh frozen. Well, it's interesting <laughs> that dry sift informed kind of your visual... Uh, I did that forever. Like, I read an article in High Times, I think it was like 1999, about putting weed in a jar with ice and water and shaking it and letting it separate. And then you strain the plant off and you pour the water off and then you pour the hash out and you let that dry. And I tried that, fucked my hash up. And I was like, fuck water hash. I'm going to go back to making dry sift. And I did that for another five, eight years before I moved to California. And when I moved here, my homie who, my really good homie, rest in peace, Billy, he was making bubble. Like in the bubble man way, like paint mixer and the cardboard. And did it. And I was just like, yo, this isn't how you make hash. Like, I don't know what you're exactly doing here, but this isn't right. Because you need to treat that material like a baby. You know what I mean? You need to be gentle, you know, paint mixer guy. Like what, get a stick out and stir that. What are you doing? And he's like, oh, this is what I saw online. Green hash, green hash, green hash. And I'm making hash forever. And I'm just like, yo, we got to rethink this hash that you're not doing. And he's like, I need as much yield as I can get because the store pays $10 a gram, you know. Yeah, it was a different mindset. That was a whole different, a whole different mindset. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go do my own hash thing and get my... But that homie is the one who got me my first set of bubble bags, right? And I've heard you say before that you use Mila's bags. Now I use Mila's, but I started on bubble because that's what they sold in the dispensary. Okay. And that's how we got hash bags. was going to the dispensary, bought hash, bought bags. This bought is from, you know, Fresh Headies. Fresh Headies, exactly. Yeah. And then I worked in the dispensary and I... Figured out they were ordering from Fresh Headies, and I just ordered direct from them. Right. And then I tried Mila's bags, and it's like... And those are called the isolators? Isolator, or? yeah. And this is like, you can tell the difference between the type of people they are and the type of hash bags they design. Because her bags are delicate, thin, and if you treat them correctly, 
they work amazingly and they last a long time. And if you're rough with them, they break down, you know? They're designed to be treated with respect. And the other hash bags are just designed to fucking hit it with a paint mixer. <laughs> so it's like a whole different kind of hash bag and they, they perform very differently. And as someone who cares so much about everything I do, I don't have any need for a durable hash bag. I want a bag that's thin and easy to work with and works well. Has you extended think, mesh. A big part of it is extended mesh. Some of that, though, is that you already have the experience to be able to work in such a delicate manner that maybe some Yeah, I've been delicate with it from the start. That's my whole approach to making hash because when you're making dry sift from trim, it's all about that light touch. It's all about light, light touch. You just want to get the heads. And so her bags come in a similar set now because I know Isolator started off as well, like three, right, originally? Yeah, from whatever I've been buying and she's always had a bunch of different bags. Buying from her was always kind of you had to like email her and like send her your bank information. And it was always like difficult to make purchases. So I would try to buy them when I'd see her at like events and stuff like that. But you know, now I just buy them online. I know everyone, I know the lady who's going to answer the email. I know her name and I just thank them. Mila knows exactly who I am. I've talked to her a bunch of times. Right. So it's nice to, and now that that's like what I use and it's what I'm comfortable with. I don't even think about trying another bag. Yeah, because to me, they perform perfectly. I wouldn't, wouldn't change it. Wouldn't change a thing. So is that the primary thing is just that they're more delicate and well, it makes you work more the, delicately? The real thing about them is that she uses extended mesh, especially in the lower bags, which changes the whole way. It makes everything faster and better. And we used to ask the other bag makers to go extended mesh and they wouldn't do it. I don't know why, if it's because of patents, stubbornness, Maybe they don't want to copy Mila. But and by she, extended mesh, what do you mean? The mesh goes up the side of the bag, which means that when it fills up with hash, this water will still go through. Right. It doesn't clog up as easily. So it's like the entire bag is able to... Well, like the, the whole bottom of it and then up the sides a few inches is mesh. Okay. So that wa- the hash will go to the bottom and the water will kind of go out the sides. Gotcha. So it doesn't clog. It gets a good flow. And yeah, I don't know. Shout to Mila. She really like... She makes a quality bag and it's, and everyone like, I hear people complain about them and it's like, I know exactly what they're doing to ruin their bags. They're just beating them up and being rough with them and they're treating them like the other brand. So it's, you know, I just tell everyone who buys them, be gentle with them, treat them well, clean them, all, you know, all that. Don't try to stretch them. People love to pull their bags tight for some reason. And I think that's really terrible for the construction of the bag and... Yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's your tools and they're expensive, you know, so I just take good care of them. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, that makes sense. I want to talk to you a little bit about melt, you know. Uh-oh. It's a big topic. <laughs> you know, let's start off with a simple one. You know, what what are some of the things that affect melt, in your opinion? Oof. Genetics being the major. A plant, the wax content and melt factor, et cetera, et cetera of a trichome head has a lot to do with the genetics. The way you grow it will affect it. I've found that indoor grows are higher wax and hydro grows are higher wax. There's a lot of things that will change the wax to oil ratio in the head. And by wax, again, just to kind of be clear, it's almost like the cuticle that so, you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So think about making hash rosin. You're putting hash into this bag and you're heating up and squishing it. And what goes through the bag is the oil. Right. And what stays behind is the wax that won't melt. Right. And that's like, that's an, you know, it's another good test of how 
much oil is actually in your heads. And the oil is what you want. The wax is basically worthless. We throw it out when we make rosin. So factors that affect melt. It's a lot to do with genetics. This is like what limits the whole non-solvent industry is that we can only work with this handful of genetics that both make good hash and make enough hash to be worth washing. So that's why for years, all I really did was sour diesel because it was worth working with. Nothing else was really made good enough hash to even if we want to sell it. If I can't dab it, wasn't really interested in selling it. Couldn't call it ice wax. Right. So, I mean, we were very public about how we had to hunt for these melt phenos. And then I think the, the other hash makers really picked up on that and everyone started hunting and they started test washing this and test washing that. And now there's like a good, you know, 15, 20 hash strains that are pretty reliable instead of like two or three, like there used to be be sour and cookies and that was it. And now there's like, you know, they took the cookies and he made the cookies and cream and, you know, they're crossing hash strains. Our orange starburst is another example. We take the orange strains that don't melt for shit, cross it to what is my opinion, the best melt strain ever. And you get an orange melty strain that never existed before because genetically orange strains didn't want to melt. We had to make that happen and then hunt for that vino. And then everyone else is doing that. So everyone's got their own little vino that they hunted that was worth keeping. That's papaya and GMO and cookies and cream. And I can name all these little hash strains. But if you see it in hash form more than once, it's probably a decent hash strain. If you only see it once, that motherfucker took a loss on that shit. And that's why he never did it again. Right. (laughs) That's why you don't see Skittles melt. Well, you know, and that leads me into, funny enough, asking you about you're known for putting out things that maybe other people haven't or won't put out, maybe because it isn't worth it. Because, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That We were playing that game for a long time. We're like, let's make stuff that no one else will make. But at the same time, I feel like kind of came at a price in the sense of like what you had to charge for it. Yeah, exactly. Became an issue. I don't know if people it became got, an people issue got, or not. People got offended and I don't want to hurt people's feelings. So that is an issue. People were genuinely offended by the price of my hash. And, and, you know, that's what it was. Stores double on me. And then taxes came in. And then Prop 64 taxes. And shit got real expensive real quick. But there's a lot I could say about this. I kind of feel like the small handful of people with big mouths who complain kind of won in a way. Because now people are afraid to make low-yield, high-end hash because they don't want that negative feedback. And I think that's kind of sad. Like as a person who really enjoys these strains that aren't really worth washing commercially, it's kind of sad they don't exist anymore, but no one wants to hurt anyone's feelings. You know, that's people's feelings are real and they don't necessarily change. So it's, and now, you know, rosin came in, kind of changed the equation, right? right? The freeze dryer came in, changed the equation. So made non-solvent accessible to pretty much anyone. And, you know, people came in and started breeding hash strains and there's more and more. You didn't have to know someone to get that one cut that makes hash. Right. Because there's 15 different cuts that make hash now. So hash became more accessible and all that. But there's still like my favorite hashes were all the ones that no one will do again. And you won't see. And then they cross it and breed with it to make it so it yields. But it's not the original. You don't see Skittles melt. They've crossed it to a million different things to try to up the yield, you know what I mean? But you don't see it because it's just not worth making. And that's like, 
kind of hurts my kind of hurts my feelings a little. But it's okay. Like you know, you can make it for yourself. It still exists in people's head stashes. It's just not on the market, right? Which yeah, is cool. It's just cool. Yeah, it exists. Yeah, it's just not commercially available to people who really want to smoke something that's like elite and unique and hard to make and all that. Skittles is my prime example for that because it's one of the worst. Let me just talk some shit. One of the worst plants to grow. Slow, tiny little runt, weak, doesn't yield for shit. And then the hash is amazing, doesn't yield for shit. So there's all these factors stacking against it, other than the fact that the terps and the melt are fucking amazing. So it's just like, you know, as a hash maker, it's cool because I've got to smoke some skills. Well, yeah, she was dank, but I'm not going to grow it unless it's for myself. Right. Because it's just, it's not worth it. And no one else will. That's why you see that stuff disappear from the market. It just doesn't exist. Do you feel that was kind of something that you were doing that was more unique? Not that you were the only person I thought doing it, was, it, but I thought it was commercially dope. at least. Yeah, like our tangy cut that we used to hash, that shit wasn't worth hashing. Starburst, barely worth hashing. The sour was a good hash one. That was like worth, but you know, I thought it was cool to like bring flavors that no one else had because we found them or they weren't worth growing or whatever reason. I thought it was cool to make stuff available. That, you know, anyone can make cookies and cream milk. That shit don't even get me high. <laughs> Just saying. It's beautiful and tastes amazing, but that shit doesn't get me high. You know what I mean? Anyone can make it. The plant, easy to grow. It yields good. Rise blah, blah. You know, it's cool. That's like what most people are going to be dabbing on because it's worth it for the producers. But as a producer, I'm just like, ah, that's commercial ass rosin. You know what I mean? Like, that's why we don't do sour diesel anymore. It's because it's just commercial. That's why we stopped doing GMO. Best yielding hash strain I ever worked with. That's why everyone and their mom was growing it and washing it. Which makes it, it's still good. I'm not saying it's not good. That shit gets me higher than anything. Right. I forget what I'm doing. But I don't want to, I'm not interested in it anymore, personally, you know? Right. I buy it from the store and smoke it. It's chill. You know, Nelson's got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's cool. No, yeah. Nelson, uh, everything they I've ever tried of theirs has been awesome. And good people, so, too. Yeah. Both him and Cam. Yeah. The 10-star rating, you know, since we're talking about Mel. That, I just... Okay. That's just me being a nerd, right? Like, it started at 5-star, and then it went to 6-star. None of that made sense to me. None of that make it doesn't still doesn't make sense to me. Wow, Do you know where that those originally came from? Or? I want to say it came from the Washington boys. I'm not quite sure who started that though. I kind of just ignored it, and then it really took over. And then I was like, "This is ridiculous. I'm just gonna start labeling it out of ten, because that's I think that's like a more subjective way to label your hash. You know, it makes it makes a lot more sense to people. And then just in the sense of like doing the one to ten scales. Yeah. Typically with things or... And then it's like it made it easier for us to decide what to rosin. It's like if it's under this number, rosin it. We don't need to put any hash out that's a six and a half out of ten. You know what I mean? Just rosin that shit. And... And before rosin? Before rosin, we were just labeling it six out of ten, six and a half. I just wanted to be honest with people. Back then I was doing multiple washes and I wanted people to know that the first wash... 70 was better than the second wash 70 or whatever, you know, whatever, what have you. And that they were priced different because they were different qualities. And it'd be, it was, it'd be cool because like one wash, I'd end up with something that cost 30 bucks. Something that cost 200 bucks, same fucking wash, but that's five and a half versus 10 or 10 plus, you know? Right. And then people got real funny about only wanting those 10s. 
And it's like, I'm sorry, but I didn't give this strain any 10s. Because to me, giving something a 10 out of 10 means it is as good as it can be for those genetics, which makes it a sliding scale. The best tangy is not going to dab like the best Starburst. But I'll call them both 10s if they're as good as they can be for that strain, for that genetic. And obviously, you're the one making that And I'm decision. the one, so we used to do a lot of test dabbing. Because <laughs> you got to make, you know, there's 38, 70, 90, 120, 150, and then you go to your second wash and your third wash, and it's just became a lot of test dabs. But I had my... And my apprentice making hash with me then, and he would help out with the test dabbing. And then I'd let the homies come. And it's not a bad gig. Because all I really wanted to do was look at the residue and the char and figure out what that looked like, because that was mostly what I based the rating off of, was how, well it, how clean it vaporized, how much residue it left. Was that residue dry or oily? You know, I could smell what it tasted like, but I couldn't smell how it dabbed. Right. So we were test dabbing everything, which was cool. I was like, yeah, test dab day. But then, like, hash season would pick up, and it's like, fuck, we got to take 10 dabs. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> There's, like, two of us. Like, all right, let's do this. All right. Almost becomes a chore. It, it was, yeah, yeah. And it's like, all right, get one of the homies over here, and he'll take it. And it's like, yo, you got to take five dabs in a row. Like, no waiting in between, because I got to get my labels on and packaged. And right. <laughs> but that's a, that's a great chore. You know what I mean? Of all the chores. But this is, like, one of the rumors about me that it's, it's like they used to say that I take a dab out of every gram, but it's because I used to test dab everything, every batch, even if it was the same fucking, you know, pound, and I purged it in two batches or whatever. I would try both batches. I'd try test dab. I mean, how can I sell something that I don't approve of? That's just put my name on it. And that's like what makes me different and weird, I guess, is that I kept everything small enough so that me and the one homie who's basically a clone of me could just do everything, you know. Right. If you don't mind me asking, out of a $200 gram that the store sold, what of that went to you? Half. They, they doubled everything. Everything I ever sold, they doubled. Sometimes over double. Rarely under. Rarely under. And I get upset when they went over double. If I underpriced anything to try to get something cheap to the patient's customers, they would just raise the price to where it should be. They wouldn't let me, like... Under they, they knew that there was money being lost there, and they were just, you know, it's like, I've always had a little battle with all my stores, you know, I've had very good personal relationships with every store I've ever worked with, I've known the people there, I know the bud tenders, I know the owners, the managers, I know all those people, but when it comes down to it, I leave and drive home six hours, two hours, whatever, because California's a big state, right. and then they do what they do, and then I find out about it on the internet, <laughs> that's... <laughs> Usually how I, how I figure it out, I like Wee Maps or something like that. I'm like, they're charging how much? That's not okay, you know. Would that affect your relationship with these shops? No, I don't, not really. I mean, not really. I've always, you just, you know, you have to, it's business. You have to communicate and be open. Just let them know what's going on, you know. I mean, just be honest and open with people. I've only worked with shops with people that I think are good people. And if I don't, I pull out of that shop hella quick. Now, I'm not going to name any names. But if you look through my history, you'll figure out what I'm talking about. I worked with the weed for like five or six years until Prop 215 ended. I worked with From the Earth for all those years, SSCC all those years. Every store I worked with, I try to work with them for long term. Right. Because it's just, it's about building up relationships with people and trust and just all that. But like in that sense where if you were surprised on weed maps by them charging extra or more than you thought that they were going to up it. And well, what do I do? 
what do you do? And then like, what do you do if they don't respect? You that? make, you make that call, right? You tell them how you feel and you tell them what it should be. And you know, you hope it was a mistake or at least they're going to lie and say it was a mistake and fix it. And if they won't fix it, you got to pull out. That's really all you can do. Right. You know, it's only the only power you have. And then you can't, you know, you let them sell out of your product cause you can't take it back. Yeah. But well, everyone I've worked with has been pretty chill. Like, and they become like personal friends on like a real level where I have meals with them and that's cool. You know, I know their family and they know my family. You know, right. That's like, that's how I do business. Yeah. That's really like, that's why a lot of people don't like me is because I don't fuck with a lot of people. Because like, once you come in, you're family and that's it. Like, you, like, you met my fucking father-in-law and my <laughs> yes. sister-in-law, you know, is, you know. Yeah. That's what happens when you come around. It's real life. We're living our real lives here behind Instagram. Right. We're doing family stuff and we're making meals and you can't just let anyone into that circle. It's the family. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I told you myself, like, I'm not in your position. I'm not in any kind of, like, position where people are, like, wanting to reach out to me. But, you know, it must be weird and awkward to have just random people hit you up and, like, want to hang out or... <sighs> it's hard. You know. <laughs> it's uh, hard to say no. Like, sorry, want dude, something I, from I don't you. kick it. I don't know how to tell you. Sorry, guy. I don't kick it with, like, maybe I'll meet you at some, you know, public event someday, but I'm just going fighting people over to the crib. You know, we live, we grow, we got our, you know, we got our family and our dogs and it's, you know, right. just my approach to life. My life's very, I try, I've always tried to keep my personal life, my professional life somewhat separated more so in the last, you know, five, six years than in the beginning. Cause it's just, you know, people don't need to know. They don't need to know all that stuff. It's fine. Has it been a challenge? Not really. I mean, I stopped posting the food I eat. Who really cares what the hell I'm <laughs> eating? You know, I stopped posting every hotel I stay at. We're all on the road. It's trap life. You know what I mean? California's a big state. You're always staying in hotels and stuff. People don't even know that. No one really cares. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I go somewhere like beautiful, I'll try to document that to some degree. But yeah, I just kind of, you know, I just kind of live my private life and do my thing. And it's easy. It's easier that way. Yeah. And I mean, you were telling me earlier, you know, while we were talking that it just seems like you feel like more relaxed right now that you're kind of out of the hash stepping back from the hash market which is it's a pretty vicious market like the competition is stiff and you know there's a lot of feelings involved because people really you know they they really revere this high quality non-solvent hash and people's feelings get hurt if they don't get some and there's never enough to go around especially you can quote me on this one there's never enough 90 and 120 to go around we can't all smoke 90 and 120, that's just not how it works. There's other grades, you know? And the 90 and 120, no matter what you charge, they always sell out first because everybody wants that, the, the high grades. So it's just, you know, to not have to let people down because I didn't hold them something. or say, It's actually a huge relief. I just do, I got, got my little legal recreational grow, my personal head stash plants, and I wash them and freeze them. And, bust them out of the freezer like there's a, something special, you know. And that here in Oregon is what, four plants? It's four plants for rec. I think you can have six medical. You can, you know, six good-sized plants outside. You can get a good amount of hash off that. Yeah, and you're running what right now? The Right now we're growing three Starburst OGs because that's my favorite hash in the world. Right. And then I got one of the chocolate Starbursts going just for some change of pace. Cool. Yeah. You know, in preparation for this interview, like with everybody else, I typically go through people's accounts and, you know, there's a quote of yours that has to do with, I guess, what you consider proper hash and color. 
And so with things having changed so much with the freeze dryer now, I'm curious to read this back to you and see what you think about the quote and what you think about that now. You know, I don't have like a year, but it said proper hash is golden, occasionally pink, purple, orange hued, depending on genetics. White hash is the result of overfeeding with salts, resulting in the thick wax membrane. An early pool, freezer burn, or a combo of those three. I think that's all still true, but I could add to that list of what causes white hash, which is I think some plants are just naturally high wax. And GMOs is a perfect example of it. Do you think a lot of the hash on the market now that does have that very, very kind of white look to it, is that all these things that I read about are these things that are factoring to you think, or is that a yeah, product could, of the freeze could be, dryer? Or? It could be any of those factors. It could be freezer burn. You know, I'll say this, the color of your hash, when you pull it and it's wet, it's the color it's supposed to be. That's what color it is. And if your hash changes color during drying, something happened. And you know, I mean, I can really get into this in depth a little of what I think is going on with the freeze dryer, which is, the vacuum is initiating crystallization, just like it can do in BHO. Just like when you schwax a slab, it's the except for you're doing it cold, so it's much more prone to this crystallization. And all freeze-dried hash is slightly crystalline. And that's the real difference between handmade hash that's proper and freeze-dried hash, is my hand-dried hash will stay an oil longer and better, whatever, the, whatever you want to use for that, then a freeze dried has because it hasn't been subjected to a vacuum, which initiates that crystallization. Once crystallization starts, it's very hard to stop it. You have to freeze it, basically. It's the only way to completely stop that crystallization from spreading. And why I'm so obsessed with that is because I have fucking asthma. And crystalline extracts trigger my asthma. Cross the board, doesn't matter. Rosin, hash, BHO, if it's crystallized hard, it makes me wheeze. And that's just my personal shit that other people probably can't relate to. Because they don't feel the same way. Right. And so that's why this whole time I've been so against crystallized hashish. is because it hurts my lungs. It's personally, you know. And so, like, if you come up to me and try to get me to smoke some random shit, I probably won't. Because the risk of me having an asthma flare-up is pretty high. It's going to fuck my day up. Right. So I kind of say stuff like, I don't smoke weed. But I do. (laughs) If I know whose weed it is and I know it's not going to fuck me up and I'm in, you know, if I have my inhaler around, maybe I'll try your stuff. Yeah. I don't roll with my inhaler. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I've been in some very awkward situations where people are like, try this. And I'm just like, ugh. And I have to, in my head, I'm like, do I, you know, have an asthma attack later or soon? Or do I just tell this this guy, no, I'm not going to smoke your shit. And it's like, it's a very weird position to be in. And then I have to explain to people, I have asthma and your stuff's imperfect and it triggers my asthma when it's in, and it's like a whole can of worms that I'm opening. And so yeah, you just avoid it. <laughs> I just avoid it. And I just try to stick to my shit. You know, I smoke my hash before it crystallizes. I smoke my rosin before it crystallizes, which is why I like to make my rosin fresh. So it doesn't have a chance to crystallize. Right. You know, it's just my weird little thing that, you know, I feel like the true pristine state of hash is an oil. When it's pure, it turns into a grease or an oil, whatever you want to call it. And that's like the pinnacle of cannabis is when you can get a pure extract of it and it melts itself into grease and it'll stay that way. That's like, that's what I'm into. (laughs) So outside of the microplaning, what are the 
requirements to properly dry hash? Well, microplaning is just a method to a means. Okay. What you're doing with that is you're separating the heads as fine and evenly as you can so you can have a fast, even dry. You want to get your drying done as quickly as you can because while you're drying, your terpenes are evaporating. But you also have to keep it cold. So that limits your drying process, right? So it becomes like a dance of cold and dry and separation. And that's, that's what you're going for. And, you know, I haven't really seen any other hand method that makes hash like a microplane hash. And even the best sieved hash, I feel like, is slightly darker than it would be if it had been microplaned. I'm going to get beat up for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Matt, you know, I know we've been hanging out a while. I, again, appreciate your time. I know it's kind of late, so I'll start kind of winding down. No worries. But, you know, since Rosin came around, has that been something that you pretty much have been doing with all your kind of B-grade material? Yeah. or? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first off, let me just say, give thanks for the freeze dryer and the rosin press, because the combination of those two is what opened up non-solvent hash to the masses. That wouldn't have happened, it would never happen because making hash my way is hard and you can only do so much a day and it kicks your ass, you can't do it every day. You know, it's very physical and demanding. So the freeze dryer made it so anyone can make hash. And that's like, and then the rosin press made it so all those people's midsy <laughs> freeze dried hash can be turned into something dabbable. <laughs> and, <laughs> And that's like the rosin, you don't even see hash anymore. They just rosin everything because their hash was never really worth dabbing in the first place. And that's okay. I'm just happy people are dabbing non-solvent. Right. Because for so long, the only option was expensive hash or BHO. And because of the freeze dryer and the rosin press taking a lot of labor out of it and you know, equalizing a lot of factors, there's so much more hash now that the price has actually come down. Yeah. It's still not cheap. No, it's not, but... The best stuff's still not cheap. Yeah, for sure. But you but, can get some, like, second wash rosin for a good price, you know? <laughs> right, and, I mean, you know, that, like you said, I think that's a good thing because it good. makes it affordable to people that maybe can't afford that. I know. smoke all of my grades. Right. I don't keep my good shit in sell. Right now, I just smoke everything. I used to just, just keep the very best stuff and sell everything else through the dispensaries. But now I'm at a point where I smoke it all. It is what it, you know. Someone's got to smoke that 38. <laughs> Shout out to Soil Grown, bringing that rosin press to the masses. I don't know if it was him, but I think it was him. Whoever brought that rosin press to the masses, that's what... That's I think what there were some earlier it. ones, maybe before Sasquatch came in, but I think they were the, the ones that really kind of... Without that, there'd be all this freeze-dried midzy half-melt. And now you bring in the rosin press and everyone's got solventless dabs, and it's like, change the game. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely agree. And, and like you said, and other people have said it's... Uh, one of the main reasons I think solventless is viable. Because the rosin press and freeze dryer. You know, like you said, there's not a ton of like what's considered six star, in this case, ten star. Uh, ten out melt. of ten, yeah, yeah, there, there never will be. And, you know, the other thing is I, I think there's maybe not like overall, but there's been a little bit of a loss in interest in, yeah. I think, melts. Yeah, yeah, it's too high maintenance. The Q-tipping and all that, people's bangers are starting to cost more than my most expensive piece of glass, you know what I mean? So everyone's getting very particular about Chaz and their bangers and all that. And I feel them. Rosin is like when we're on the road or we're at the beach or whatever and you don't want to have to like think about what you're doing. You just 
blind dab that shit, you know, just throw a chunk in there and keep the bit up and you can't really burn it too. I mean, you can, you can, right. definitely, you can definitely chaff it, but it's a lot harder. No. Yeah. I think that that's true. And I still like dabbing hash. I, yeah. I like hash as well. I mean, I don't, I like rosin as well, but if I had a preference, you know, and it's funny, I, as I've said on here before, like I've been in a few instances like today where I went into a shop looking for something and they were kind of surprised that I was looking for the water hash. Mm -hmm. And like the guy was almost like oddly excited. Yeah. Yeah. Water hash is like, just come to Oregon. When we moved here two years ago, I asked these two guys, like, what do you dab? And they said, <laughs> you love this. They said, the BHO I get makes me puke. So I smoke flour rosin. And I said, have you, I said, have you ever heard of full melt or ice wax? And they're like, yeah, I've heard of it, but I've never seen that. And I was like, wow, okay, Oregon, time for a hash renaissance in this state. Yeah. But it's happening. There's like a few producers and hopefully there'll be more soon. And no, it's cool. I agree. I think, you know, song, this is Nicotisa's, uh, is a good alternative, you know? Yeah. You brought this up in kind of different ways today. And, you know, I'm curious, like your take on it. So, you know, you've said, for example, you've gone and like trolled boards <laughs> and you've kind of poked around fun at like some situations or people or things of that sort and you know again from keeping it with you throughout the years i find your sense of humor pretty funny hey thanks it's changed over time yes i've been making jokes for a long time i've been online making jokes trying to make people laugh about trying to make weed the weed community specifically laugh jokes only people who smoke a lot of weed would enjoy these jokes, you know? Right. Or even get them. Right. Right? Yeah. So, but I used to pick, I used to go easy. I used to take, you know, I used to pick on people because it's easy to pick on stupid people or people doing stupid things is more like what I should say. Or both, right? It's, it's easy. It's like, you know, all these meme pages now they do. They just find someone who's a fool and they pick on them as much as they can because it's easy. It's, it's easy. And, you know, and then I met my... My girl, and she's like, you should try being nicer. <laughs> and, and now I have. I've actually changed the way I make jokes, and I'm really careful not to pick on anyone in particular. Although, no matter what, people always think I'm talking about them. And most of my jokes now are about myself and my good, close friends. But people still, people I've never met, never, have no idea who they are. They'll message me like, I know this meme is about me. It's like, yo, I have no idea who you are. This is about one of my best friends. And he can punch me in the face if he wants to. You know, it's like, what? What is this? It's like, this meme's about me and my garden and my struggles, you know? Like, right. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I mean, like, do you think it's just people being... I make jokes... Sensitive? That or? are very general, that people can relate to because it's about stuff that we're all doing. And because I'm not picking on anyone in particular, anyone who's paranoid can start to imagine that it's about them. And, and I have to tell them, I don't know, I've never seen your page of knowing. And they're like, oh, sorry, I have to go to Swarm. This was about me. Right. And I'm just like, I don't know who you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, you know, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but from afar, you seem like kind of a polarizing figure. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that's true. You know, or like people either really like Matt Rice or they maybe not so much. Yeah, they hate my ass, yeah. I've been making jokes for a long time, but it's not just the jokes. I'm calling people out for a long time. I used to post, I mean, I almost killed Emerald Cup. I'll say that for all you people. They accidentally posted the results to the entire cup one year. 
And I went and screenshotted all lab failures because it was all my friends and people I knew and leaders in the industry failing lab tests left and right. And for a cup, they entering product that's poisonous into a cup. I just, it just blew my mind that everyone was cheating and they thought they could get away with it. And I made collages of these lab test failures. I had people threatening to sue me over it, calling me different kinds of prejudice for including them in this collages I made. You know, in that one collage, I probably made 20 enemies that will never forgive me. People told me, like, you posted that lab test failure and it drastically affected my business. And I'm like, sorry, you shouldn't have been poisoning people and you definitely shouldn't have entered into the cup that was going to publish your results online. And now they don't publish the results online anymore. Because who would enter their Emerald Cup if they're going to tattle on you for poisoning people? And so they, now they, they hide off. They, the ones that I screenshot and posted, they pull that all down as soon as the feedback started coming in. Like, why the fuck am I paying you and giving you hash so that you can expose me for poisoning people? And so that's all. But I had like, there was a fluke and my ass jumped on it. And I made fucking 20 enemies for life that day. But I thought it was really important that everyone know like, hey, all these people who are winning cups, industry leaders, poisoning you. So, you know, it's funny that you bring the cups up because that was one of my questions is, I don't think I've ever heard of you competing in a cup. No, I would never. And, uh, you know, I'm curious as to why. Shit, you think they're going to get my hash for free? Please, please, they can go buy it from the store. Um, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to take my best hash and give it to these clowns. I know everyone. It's just not, there's no way. There's no way. But then also, what do I have to prove at this point, honestly? Like, giving away my best hash. That's just a crazy idea to me. Like, people want recognition so bad that they'll pay someone money to smoke their best hash. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's just a lady. Like, okay, guys, you have fun with that. I'm going to keep my shit and smoke it with my friends and family. You know? But no, like really the whole thing is I've never felt the cups were qualified on any level to judge like they do. They're all corrupt. My first cup, I remember, fuck, I didn't even say shit. I rolled up and met the High Times crew. This was way back, way back. And I was like, yo, what's up with those cup winners? I want to see them, I, you know? Yeah. And they're like, that shit's already sent back east. Like all the good shit's gone. Here's all, <laughs> the, here's all the bullshit. You can check this shitty BHO out. And I'm like, the fuck is that all the, this is really just a way for you guys to get head stashed like you ain't ever getting an entry from me you know what i mean you ain't ever getting an entry that's it and then i mean just look at the judging look at the whole thing like who who are these people judging you know it, yeah. oh god i'm gonna see some asshole shit here if you want to have a real hash cup you have me nick a t maybe a couple other guys the ogs judge that shit you don't pick your homies you don't sell judge passes. What kind of clown shoe shit is that? Selling judge passes to any random old. Get people who actually know what they're fucking talking about, who have a history so they can compare today to yesterday and ten, you know. It's like, you know, get some qualified judges if you want a real competition. Hold one a year, you know. Right now there's, what, 500 cups given away every year? None of those are special. Sorry, cup winners. There's 500 cups every year. Your cups aren't special. It is what it is. Oh, you won 11 cups this year? Congratulations, 11 out of 500. Get out of here, you know? It's, you know, it's kind of a joke to me. (laughs) I sound like such an asshole. (laughs) Since you brought up the labs and the testing, you know, that's, again, something that I know that throughout the years you've kind of poked fun at and, 
you seem very distrusting of the majority of labs, you know. Well, let, let's be honest. Cannabinoid laboratory testing for many, many years was only, the only purpose of it was for Harborside to have a THC percent to put next to their flowers so that they could push the flowers with the high THC. It was really just a marketing tool. There was no safety screening whatsoever for, I don't know how long, half a decade. The labs were strictly a marketing tool, which it's worthwhile to know the THC percent in your flower, but you're not doing us any real justice by analyzing the THC and CBD and nothing else. So, you know, over the years, they finally started testing for safety and now it's mandated by the state, which is what it unfortunately really took for the labs to start testing for actual safe products. It took the state forcing them. But I'll give California this, their testing regulations right now are better than anywhere else's. They're testing for heavy metals, they're testing for a slew of pesticides, testing for mold and mildew, which aren't, you know, molds, mildews, and pesticides, and metals aren't really tested for in other states. So the labs have turned from a marketing tool, basically by Harborside, into like a serious thing. It took the states demanding it happen for them to turn into serious safety, but now they can actually do safety screening. I like to get my safety screening done in California because I feel like they have the most rigorous testing. And the lab or labs that you trust? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been working with SE Labs for a long time. I work with Sonoma Lab Works in Santa Rosa because I lived there forever and they're really nice people. And I like going, you know, you can go and drop your samples off. I used to work with Steep Hill Lab. I haven't worked with them for a while, but you know, they're a big name. I don't really know. There's so many labs now. I used to work with one that was just near my house when I first moved to Oregon, and they only took cash. And I was like, <laughs> I was like these guys. Yeah, <laughs> but that's, that's it. The industry we're in, it's hard to have a card processor. Yeah, that's true. It's very true. Sounds funny, but it's really not, you know. Because, no, it's serious, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a handicap, I think, for any kind of cannabis business owner to just be dealing with bulk yeah. amounts of cash. cash. You can't put it in the bank. It's you not can't. safe. It's not all practical. That. It's not all that. All that. Logical. It's dirty. It's not safe. Yeah, it's not practical. All that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Your thoughts on traditional hash? Because I know you've had some opinions. Tra- traditional hash is really cool as a relic of the past. When hash had to be smuggled internationally or up people's butts, there was a lot of reason to compress it as absolutely dense as you possibly could. Now in this modern day and age, we're keeping our hash in grams in the fridge and freezer. There's really no reason to press it for anyone. And that's just, you know, times change. It's really cool. Like I used to press hash and all that in 18 different ways. And it's like the best part of pressed hash is pressing the hash. Like it's fun. But I don't really think it does anything for the hash to make it better. In fact, it just speeds up degradation. So you don't think there's anything to almost like a aging or... I think aging hash is bullshit. curing call, you know. Curing hash. Okay. Curing of flowers makes sense because flowers are green. And what you're doing is letting the chlorophyll in the flowers break down, which creates a less harsh smoking flower. Hash shouldn't be green. Straight up, if it's green, it's fucked up. So there's really nothing to cure. That's kind of how I feel about it. So yeah. So any, any curing at that point is really just a degradation product, making your hash further away from what it's really true. Oops, it's really its true potential. You know, 
So I, well, I think Frenchie and what he's trying to do, it's very, it's very cool because it's part of history and he's trying to teach people how hash has been made over the years. I think in these modern times of dabbing and vaporization and all that, it's not really the direction we're trying to go. Try yeah, trying not yeah. to talk too much shit. No, and yet there's still, you know, a huge market for it in, around the world. Yeah, I mean, that's what people still think hash is. And it's easier to transport that way. And not everyone has hash at the store that was grown down the street. A lot of people are buying hash that came on a boat or, can, you know, came on a whatever. Right. So for all that, I totally get, I totally get the traditions of hash. But in this, I feel like we've totally gone to another level beyond traditional hash, where something like Starburst OG, when made properly, presses itself in the fridge. And that's really like... Have you had any hash ever, I guess, lose weight while in the fridge? You know, this is something you're going to find kind of weird. I really don't weigh any of my shit. I don't weigh my yields. I I mean, I weigh how much I wash, because I like to standardize that. But I don't weigh how much hash I get and this, I don't do my yields on rosin anymore. I just don't care anymore. I just think, well, whatever it is, what it is. I can kind of tell just, you know, how it turned out anyways. I don't, but you know, I don't really keep track of numbers on anything. I feel like taking all that out of it is kind of just, it's not about that anymore. Not for me at this point. It's just about making some best hash I can make. Right. Yields what it yields. Which is funny because everyone asks me, like, what a yield? It's like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> and they're like, quit lying. And it's like, no, I really don't. I really don't know. Yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Is there any future for the rise rolls? Oh, my juice roll-ups? Yeah, there really is. I'm waiting on a few things. You know, the truth about those is they're super labor-intensive. The way I've created making them it was you know everything i do i try to create a way to do it that people won't copy because it's too hard and that's kind of what ice wax is no one will make ice wax i mean people will but it's very difficult you have to really love hash to sacrifice your body like that for it and same thing with the juice roll-ups i get burnt every fucking batch of juice roll-ups because the way i make them it just has to do with the dehydration and so it's like i don't know maybe i need to figure out a better way to make them so i don't burn myself every time because it's a limiting factor for sure. It's like, don't want to get burnt today. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Hot fruit juice spitting at me. Anyways, but that's going to take some time. I need to build out a kitchen for that. I really need like a proper, proper kitchen. Dehydrators take a lot of space. You know, you saw my little one down there. Yeah. But that does 10 little slabs at a time. And that's really not any kind of quantity. Right. But I'll work on it. I'll probably bring them back with CBD in them first. Cool. You know, this goes back to, again, at times it seems that you're very, like, opinionated about things, which obviously you have the right to be. But this is something that happened a while back ago, and I don't want to necessarily get into that aspect. But you brought up the idea of being able to be successful in the cannabis industry in California, for example, having to be tied into almost like a celebrity name or some kind of celebrity status attached to that. I don't like to use that word, but I just try to think of it as like brand recognition. You know, you, you go into this weed store, you have no idea what you're fucking getting. They didn't test for pesticides until just recently, right? So going into the store and finding something that you know isn't going to fucking poison you, that was the hardest thing. It's still the hardest thing to do. And that's, that's my niche. You know, I never 
he's poisoned, so I can't poison anyone. And then, and then like it's, it sounds so simple when you say it. You just don't add poison and it won't make poison. Right. But poison is the remedy to almost every problem, at least for some people, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I didn't ask the question well, but I meant more in regards to like having like a celebrity, like an actual celebrity, celebrity person be either the face of the brand. Oh, I see what you're saying. Part of the brand. I don't think I ever had that. Did I say that? No, not that you had it, but oh, you... Oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. You've okay. had some opinions about that. Okay. Here's what I got to say about people who are getting in the industry now. If you're getting in the industry now because it's legal and you didn't do it before because it wasn't, you're fucking pussy. <laughs> Just straight up. Like, okay, cool. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait for it to become fully legal to throw your hat in the ring, you know, while the rest of us are out there fighting for this. But, I mean, it's a way forward. All these celebrities who smoke weed want to get in on it and they don't want to do the work. They don't have the SOPs. They just want to use their name and get famous. And that's just something that I'm not, you know, that's not my style. I'm not never into that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I watch TV and movies and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, that's just, it's a very California, LA thing, especially like celebrity really matters down there. And I mean, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't, but to people it does you know like you go to LA around the Oscars and every bar is watching the Oscars which is like to me that's weird I'm like what the hell why are we watching but <laughs> people are there cheering it on like football they're like Leo to cry yeah like the whole bar is cheering and I'm like whoa LA is different like they really care right. about celebrities like they genuinely care about these celebrities and it's you know it's funny to me it's just not my life it's yeah. just, you know <laughs> you're not gonna see that from me you'll say that right now on record you ain't gonna see that shit for me. So we won't see Matt Rise in a couple of years with Matt Rise times some terrible rapper? No. Unless Doom. Doom, if you hear this, hit me up, boy. Hit me up. I got you. <laughs> you know, without necessarily, I mean, I don't know how we can disattach brands to this question, but I'm curious, uh, what are Matt Rise's three favorite hash makers? Ooh, I can't answer that question. I'm gonna make everyone mad. That's <laughs> These are, these are the questions that I totally just dread. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say because my experience with hash is somewhat limited. I live in California, so I sell California hash mostly. I don't really know about Colorado hash. Yeah. I've tried a little bit of it, but n- none of it's like straight from the store to me. You know what I mean? It's all set out and caked up and this and that. This is how I answer this question. The people who are working with my favorite farmers are my favorite hash makers. Okay. And so right now I'd say my favorite farmer is keeping it coastal and he's working with Ati and they're making some delicious, amazing quality hash because it's really not about the hash maker. It's really about the quality of the material and that's all on the farm, right? It doesn't matter how good of a hash maker you are. The material is mids and hash is mids. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the consensus uh, that everybody I've spoken to, you know, comes to whether they're the processor only or they're growing and processing mm-hmm. Yeah, it just comes down to the quality of how well you're growing that plant. And then you just got to try not to fuck it up. Right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, (laughs) you've been doing it a long time, so I'm sure there's a bunch of, like, little things here and there that you can do to make that easier, more efficient. I haven't ruined a batch in many, many years. Right. Many, many years. I don't don't remember remember the last time I ruined a batch because I have all my SOP in place. I basically do follow my recipe and it works out. 
as long as I stay within my parameters, everything works out. If you try to get crazy, gonna have a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Do you see yourself continuing to do your own thing? I mean, I'm never gonna stop making hash. This is, I love, I've been smoking, making hash since 1998, right? So now it's been 20 years. I still love hash. I still love making hash. I get excited about getting to wash my own material. I'm like, yes, I get to wash my shit. <laughs> <laughs> I get like nervous about the challenge of having to microplane Starburst OG when it's really right because it's super challenging every time and there's no matter I can go through everything I'm going to do but it's still going to be challenging and like I like that that's that little bit of like nervousness is what makes me excited about it yeah like, don't fuck it up man yeah you and it almost is like a you know like a fighter having a little yeah. bit of the nervousness it keeps yeah. yeah a little bit of that kind of edge uh, that you need sometimes yeah. you know to do things like that You know, you mentioned earlier about how you like the flavor of water hash opposed to dry sift. Because What? it's from fresh frozen. Okay. By drying your material so that it can be sifted, you're evaporating huge part of the terpenes and especially your more volatile terpenes, which I've, you know, are clearly the hardest ones to capture. And as a grower, I know all about these volatile terpenes because they bake off under your grow lights You can smell them when they're, you know, you can smell when you touch the plant. Right. And I've always wanted a hash that smells exactly like the plant when it's alive. Yeah. And that's very counter to what traditional hash is with the curing and all that, changing the flavor. I wanted it to taste just like bumping into your best cola in the garden. And that's, that's kind of what we go after. Is Yeah, that's cool. And I mean, I think that's kind of like what this newer style of hash is all about. A lot of the hash makers are farmers too. Yeah. Because no one will let you wash their nugs. You got to grow them yourself. If you want to wash fresh frozen flowers, you really got to grow them yourself. That, and I mean, I'm sure it gives you just so much more control over yeah, exactly. a lot of different things. Exactly. And as a hash maker, you know, it's really hard to work with other farmers. Really hard. Every crop is their best crop ever. You know what I mean? Oh, it's the best crop ever. And it's like, are you sure? Because it kind of came out minty this time. And they're like, actually, you're right. It was a little minty this time. I was hoping you would have noticed. And it's like, dude, I'm the fucking hash maker. I'm, everything that you did is just exaggerated when I when I touch it. So, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and like, as the farmer washing my own stuff, it's like, I know like, oh, this crop was good or this crop was all right. Yeah, I I'm know sure. My expectations can be more realistic at that point. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, You're the only one who had a hand in that, in a way, yeah. outside of the elements. And her. Yeah, and that's her, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you guys are, you know, I think that's worth mentioning. Is you guys are a team now, basically. Yeah. Um, well, when she first moved in, she was basically like, you know, what, you work from 8 a.m. until midnight on a 15-minute timer all day like a fucking psychopath. Like, this is not okay. Like, what can I help with? You can't keep doing this. Right. And this is just to clarify your girlfriend, yeah. fiance. My fiance, yeah. yeah. Now that yeah. we're speaking about it. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, I'd really use some help in the garden because I'm not going to make you make BHO. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. And so I'd really use it. And then my, my apprentice Skunk Works was already making the hash. And so I, she kind of took over the garden and he was making hash. I could work on Juice, rest of my juice rolls were really pretty. Right. Because I had time to really put time and effort and thought into them. And making oil and <sighs> making caps. That's when I really started having time to make the caps. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Last question. If you could hear me interview someone, whether it's a hash maker or in the hash world, who would that be? I would love for you to interview Mila. I know that's like overseas. And I think she has a... Uh, 
history of knowledge that is at risk of being lost. She teaches old school traditional stuff, and a lot of what she says is counter to what Frenchie says. And I think it's really interesting to get this other old school perspective. She talks about, I think, Moroccans keeping their hash loose until they were ready to smoke it, at which point they would press it, which is exactly what we do. We press it right before we smoke it. So it's, you know, it's really cool to have this like international other opinion. It's not Frenchie because he's very much into his shit and nothing else. And, right. And so it's really to get, she has like a very worldly, you know, historical view of hash. And I think that, you know, she knows little nuggets of knowledge that are probably going to be lost with this because this new generation, we don't do that shit anymore. We don't travel to Morocco and wherever the hell to learn. We just don't do that. It's not a thing. It's not even safe. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and maybe it wasn't back then. But maybe it wasn't was back no, then, but there she was no alternative. Yeah, it was the only place to go learn. Yeah, the hippie or the hash highway or whatever they called it. Right. Yeah. M- Mila. Cool, man. Well, Matt, again, thank you for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for opening your house up to me. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? I want to say thanks to all my supporters over the past decade. I've got to live such a blessed life doing what I love. Most people live their whole lives and they never get to do what they love for a living. And I'm just so thankful that this is actually, I don't have to fucking cook food for rich people anymore. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) It must be a good feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, So again, this is Matt Rise. Uh, If you want to follow him on Instagram, it's at Matt double underscore Rise. And the Hassashian. And yeah, you can follow us always at the Hashishin. And we appreciate you listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish In. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.